Mech Pilots Online Battletech Manuals Online Long-Term Memory Offline All Systems Bungled Initiating Bungletech Podcast Hello Mech Warriors In our 11th deployment of Bungletech we are back to our regular format Starting off with my spheroid co-host Michael and I reviewing the results of our Insert Your Name Here is Battletech Favorite Survey. After this, we take a moment to regale on an epic Cyclops sniper shot in our Battlefield Outcome Report. Then, we discuss a recently discovered Omega Bug. I then read a sample from the story Marauder by Lance Scarenzi. And we share a quick special announcement in our Extraordinary Proclamation segment. It's time, Mech Warriors. Raise your hands in prayer. The Black Marauder, the Dark One, is on its way. Bonus Objective Extraordinary Proclamation Initiating Before we get into our primary segment today, I wanted to announce a special promotion we are doing this month. You may have already heard the news, but we've recently designed a new game mode entitled Hunt of the Black Marauder. This game mode pits the Black Marauder against a lance of hunting mechs. The game mode has been designed to be balanced in terms of the feasibility of the hunting lance being able to defeat the Black Marauder. And... Very cruel in the capacity of the Black Marauder to stack circumstances in its favor to utterly decimate the lance hunting it. It is a game mode not for the faint of heart, but a great mode for those that want to experience the horror of trying to defeat the legendary Black Marauder firsthand. This game mode and all its created assets are shared in our Battletech podcast public content resource linked in the podcast description. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank those who've helped me with balancing playtesting or whom offer design inspiration. Namely, Denim Hardman, Freshman, Lorian Sunrider, Saul Roth, and Foxed Network. And I especially want to give a big thank you to Tychurian One, who allowed us to use his Black Marauder art for the face cards of the deck. You can find the link to his Twitter in the podcast description. Check out his art. It's pretty sick. And on to the promotion. As a special bonus this month, we are doing a draw for five physical copies of the Black Marauder Initiative deck. Each copy will be professionally printed and sent right to your doorstep. And, honestly, they are pretty rad if I do say so myself. To enter this draw, simple. Do us a favor and refer a friend to our podcast. And then... Fill out our draw form linked in our podcast description with your preferred tag and email address. Worry not, collected emails will only be used to contact the winner of the draw, and then they'll be decimated from the face of the planet, at least in our database. Also, only one entry per person, please. The draw closes on November 15th, with winners being drawn a few days after. Mech Warriors, make sure to fill out the draw form soon. Primary Objective Podcast Topic Segment Initiating
Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 11 of Bungle Tech. We are here today to discuss the results of the Insert Your Name Here Battletech Favorite Survey. We got a ton of really rad results and are super, super stoked to share them. And of course, I'm once again joined by the valiant, by the hyper-intelligent, the compassionate, the understanding, the steaming and sensual, Michael. Say hello, Michael. Hello. It's me. So Michael and I have actually been spending more time than anticipated. That can be the theme of the Bungle Tech podcast production process. More work effort than anticipated. <laughs> to look at the data and the results and to create some coherent messaging and themes that we can take out of it and share with you. But there were some really cool themes. Before we start, some information about the survey. In total, we had around 80 submissions, and we used this to pull out themes and cool little fun observations. Obviously, with that amount of number, we can't say stuff is statistically significant or anything like that, so don't take these numbers super seriously, but they are fun, and there are some cool observations that I think would hold if the survey numbers went up even more. You know, don't take this too seriously as probably words to live by anytime you're listening to Bungle Tech. Strongly recommend you do not take us seriously. Take us seriously only in the fun way. I'm seriously having fun, guys. Yeah! Okay? Until you get to our rule check discovery segment today, and then you'll discover how we can get pretty technical. For better or for worse. <laughs> All right, so what we're going to do is we're actually going to walk through the individual responses, we're going to talk about themes. For each one of them, we've tried to do a top three. And then on top of that, we've pulled out a unique observation pulling different data points together. I will reference as well, I am going to share this data out with the community. Obviously, I'll strip out names and identifiable information, but the data itself will be there with a pivot table in case you want to go in and just be a bit of a data nerd and figure stuff out yourself. Because honestly... It was pretty fun. Okay, the first question of the survey. Let's get into it. What's your favorite light mech? Well, I was sort of surprised by these results. Here are your top three favorite light mechs. Number one, Locust. Wow. Number two, Spider. Wow. Number three was a tie. Fire Moth and Jenner. And funnily enough, in all these responses... 73% of people selected inner sphere mechs. 27% selected clan mechs as their favorite light. Any surprises here, Michael? I was actually a bit surprised how many people listed the Raven. I have the Raven as my runner-up favorite, and I sort of thought it was kind of an unpopular mech, but I don't know, like, it's, it's a cool mech, so I'm, I'm glad there's other people that like it as well. Yeah, it was vibing with a lot of people. I think it ended up Fourth, right? I, uh, I also want to shout out Retro, who wants more people to look at the Dola. I looked at the Dola. It does not look like my kind of mech, but, you know, I guess it's cool if you're into, like, ninja mechs, I guess. Now I gotta look at the Dola. I want to play a ninja mech. Ninjas are cool. Mechs are cool. Ninja mechs are amazingly cool. It multiplies. Also, uh, Rex Rawhide introduced me to the fact that there exist light quad mechs, which I didn't really expect. I guess I only ever envisioned like big old quads, but apparently they make tiny ones too. The tarantula? Yes. Yes, the tarantula is one of them. Yes. We've never played with quads. That's something we should really try. They look a little bit fun. It's on my bucket list. 
my quadrupedal bucket list. Next to the top three medium mechs. Your favorite medium mech, I can't believe I'm saying this, is the Hunchback. Tied for second, I also can't believe I'm saying this, is the Wolverine and the Shadowhawk. And tied for third, the Phoenix Hawk and the Crab. Oh my god. The split of preference for mech selection for this was 76% of people chose Inner Sphere mechs. 21% chose clan mechs, and 2% chose Mixtech. I'm surprised you're surprised by the Hunchback. I always understood the Hunchback is a pretty popular mech. It's one of those mechs that really can punch above its own weight class with tons of different super effective loadouts. I guess it's not surprising to me that lots of people like it. And everything on there is pretty... Like, I, I guess people are down on the Shadowhawk, so that, that's a bit surprising, but... To me, I'm just really surprised by Hunchback, Wolverine, and Shadowhawk, to be honest. The Phoenix Hawk, I can understand. I mean, this comes down to my playstyle, obviously. But uh, Hunchback, to me, oh, I mean, it is a good utility mech, so I can understand it as a utility choice. But I just, as the favorite mech, very, very surprised. And a, and a solid winner. It was a solid lead of the selections, too. There was at least one other person who likes the Blackjack. So thanks, Will. Glad to have you on the side. <laughs> all right let's go to the top three heavy mechs number one by a landslide the warhammer number two timberwolf surprise surprise number three mad dog oh good taste people the split for here 70 percent inner sphere 27 percent clan mixed tech three percent of people to me, I was not surprised to see the Timberwolf on this list. I would never imagine a list of top three heavy mechs with a Timberwolf not on it because it is iconic. But the Warhammer, even though I love the Warhammer, I think it's an amazing mech, I did not think it would be the top heavy, especially by the popularity that it had. Did you, uh, did you catch the one answer in there from someone who... Uh, pick their favorite heavy mech from the collectible card game. No. Morgoth listed their favorite mech as, as the one that they started with in the collectible card game. So there's at least one other person who's played the collectible card game, Nathan. <laughs> it's such a good card game. Come on, people, get on it. It's, it's, who cares that it hasn't existed since the 90s? It's being rekindled by Renegade HPG. <laughs> you can play it again. Yes. All right, let's move to our top three assaults. Once again, I am surprised. Number one, the classic awesome. Number two, Highlander. Number three, Warhawk. The split of preferences, Inner Sphere 69%, Clan 30%, Mixtech 1%. The awesome, honestly, the awesome, we know the awesome's a good mech. It's a bread and butter mech. But to be the top, I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> the Warhawk being on the list. Oh, God. The Warhawk's cool. It looks cool. It's a really good mech. I can totally understand it being there. But the awesome, wow. Totally surprised. When I was seeing the results come in, I'm like, another awesome, another awesome, another <laughs> awesome, another awesome. Wow. I think people just selected it because it's called awesome. It's like psychologically tricking you people. My favorite answer in here was uh, Corrigan, who just specified the entire 95-ton 
weight band, then realized they needed to be more specific and listed off nine different assault mechs as their favorite. So clearly they're they're sort of a, a they're an assault specialist. Yes, and one thing I should say is there were quite a few people that insisted on listing multiple mechs. And I appreciate you. But that made data analysis a little bit challenging. So we had to be clever. We had to be clever with the analysis. To be fair, I also listed off uh, favorites and runners up for a lot of mine. So, you know, they were just following the trend. All right. How about we move to the top three non-mech unit types? Michael, I believe you did the analysis on this. Sure did. So the uh, the top three, a lot of the answers got more specific, but we, we grouped them into general classes here. So top was battle armor, followed by ground combat vehicles, and VTOLs were a distant third. Uh, battle armor and combat vehicles crushed everything else beneath their heavy boots slash tank tracks. And within the battle armor, almost half of respondents specifically called out elementals, and 50% were, were just non-specific battle armor. I assume inner sphere. Maybe there were some elementals in there as well. And then something that, that, uh, that really surprised me looking at this was among the combat vehicles, 74% of people either specified tracked vehicles or a specific tracked model, lots of Shreks and Manticores and PPC carriers of various descriptions, 26% like their hover tanks, and 0% of people like wheeled combat vehicles. There is literally not a single person who asked for a wheeled combat vehicle, and that makes me kind of sad. I think we've had enough of getting our wheeled normal vehicles stuck in winter in various <laughs> cross places across the world. I don't want to relive that in the Battletech universe. When I finally get around to running a combined arms force, I'm definitely just having a whole bunch of wheeled vehicles. I'm just going to sit there for like 20 minutes just rolling to see if I get bogged down every hex. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be fantastic. Everyone else will be having a great time as I do that. <laughs> so when I was looking at this data analysis, I thought to myself, those 52% that said battle armor, I actually feel like in intuitively they meant elementals. Because elementals are amazing, and I chose elementals as my favorite non-mech unit type. So, thank you for agreeing with me, world. <laughs> Up next is the top three physical attacks. I don't know why I'm talking about this, because I'm not much of a physical attack person, but I guess that's the way the, uh, the cookie crumbles. The top three physical attack types were kick narrowly eked out a victory over melee weapon and death from above the classy one trailed in a, a distant third kick obviously being the mechanically mathematically optimal choice melee weapon uh, you can get that, those big damage death from above almost always a bad time definitely a bad time for someone every time either you or the person getting dfa'd but I, I guess that's not none of that's too surprising among the melee weapon users uh 30 of people pick a hatchet as their weapon of choice what i found interesting about this is i was actually surprised that kick was the highest because i'm split i'm i'm both surprised and not surprised so kick is the utility choice for sure so first i'm surprised so many people made the utility choice. But I'm also surprised that death from above, the stupid choice, was third. <laughs> so either way, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted by people choosing utility, and I'm conflicted by people choosing the impractical choice. But death from above, I declare it, baby, is the best. 
I, uh, I I thought it was funny. I, I was introduced to you know, while, while reading some of these responses, the idea of kick being a pulse weapon because it has the same minus two attack modifier. So I, that's fun. I like the idea of pulse kicks. Pulse kicks. Oh, yeah, totally. The natural pulse weapon. The clans have pulse weaponry. Inner Sphere has kick weaponry. <laughs> same equivalent. Different range bands, different effectiveness, but, you know, it it, uh, it plays out appropriately, I think. I do have one question, Nathan, which is yes. two people specified swarm attacks as their favorite physical attack. And I don't... Is that a valid answer? Anything that uses elementals is a valid answer. <laughs> but don't they carry weapons? But they're grabbing on with their claws. It's, it's narratively... <laughs> confusing you got to visualize it you have to read the books you have to be in the lore you have to train in a sipco for a few years to really understand it <laughs> but i've done it and you just got to trust me on this it makes complete sense all right i'll, I'll take your word for it please don't swarm me mr clan <laughs> so next question top three weapons first weapon the basic bitch ppc just classic PPC. That was the top. Second, the Gauss rifle. <laughs> no surprise there. And third, autocannons. This ranking actually changed a bit when we grouped things differently together, though, because people called out individual types. So if we considered PPCs as a group, i.e. PPC, ER PPC, heavy PPC, snub-nosed PPCs, they were still in first place. But then autocannons actually beat out gausses because all of a sudden they were including AC, light AC, LBX, rack, ultra AC. All those things put them above the gauss rifle, which moved down to third place with just standard, Hague, and light. Hague being hyper assault gauze rifle or something like that. I've never used a big <laughs> gauss shotgun thing. Looking at the percentages across the weapon types, 46% chose an energy weapon as their favorite, 35% chose a ballistic weapon as their favorite, 15% missile weapons, 3% melee weapons, and one lonely percent artillery. Honestly, I was very surprised by the basic PPC making it to the top. But I'm assuming when people wrote that, they were also thinking, you know, PPC is also an ER PPC, also a heavy PPC. They were thinking about the, the range of variety. Same could be said about the autocannon. Also, it's just a, it, like it's a solid weapon. You know, autocannons have their drawbacks. Lots of people prefer energy weapons for their flexibility. And, you know, I know medium lasers win wars. But if you want a favorite weapon, a favorite energy weapon has to be the PPC, right? Like, it's punchy, it's sexy, it's fun, it's cool. Anytime you hit someone with it, it's like a bunch of damage. Medium lasers, yeah, you know, you're you're winning five damage at a time, but it doesn't it doesn't spark joy the same way PPCs do. Someone referenced the PPCs their favorite, specifically from the big blue glowing orb from the old Mech Warrior 2 games. If you remember playing <laughs> that, you just shot like this orb. It basically looked like an imp fireball from Doom. <laughs> But you were shooting it, and it was blue and lasery. Jason Hansa, I, I appreciate your call for, quote, Blazer Boys Rise Up, but unfortunately there were no other Blazer Boys. 
Only one blazer boy, Jason. Only You're the only blazer boy. boy. Hashtag blazer boy. <laughs> 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 it sounds a little bit sad when we say it that way. Sorry, Jason. Don't cry. You make other people cry. I, I kind of want to try out try out some binary lasers now just to just to experience it. Maybe maybe I too could become a, a blazer boy. If Jason Hanza makes us like blazer boy bandanas, I will definitely try <laughs> blazers and I'll wear it and I'll go to the table like, yo, blazer boys show up. Let's go. <laughs> Sweet. What do we got next? Up next is top three ammo types. This is where we, we start to see maybe some people started to not have quite the same ideas. So some of the answers are getting a little bit dodgy here. But we do still have three reasonably popular ammo types. Inferno SRMs are the top favorite ammo type, followed by cluster munitions, probably an, an LBX autocannon, and then semi-guided LRMs trailing in third. Overall, a little over half of the respondents preferred some type of missile ammo, 40% ballistics, and then 6% artillery, and 1% specified battle armor as their favorite ammo type. Throw that battle armor, baby. Huck em. <laughs> I want someone to look up the rules for that. <laughs> Hucking battle armor. It's definitely <laughs> possible. We did have some some notable responses in here that I liked. Retro, once again, going above and beyond by specifying tactical nuclear weapons as an ammo type uh, with the Davy Crockett M. Uh, Lucas McCall preferred the Friendship Ender semi-guided Arrow 4s. And John Batman Sharpton has introduced me to the fact that Battletech has ARADs, like anti-radiation missiles. I didn't know that was a thing. I think that's really cool. I wonder if they work or if they're just kind of garbage. Whatever they are, I'm really curious to use them as, as anti-launcher missiles. I looked up the rules for that as well, and they're to counter ECMs. It's actually pretty cool. They're like a, they're a countermeasure built into the game for or counteracting that sort of defensive equipment. But against everything else, they're worse. Cool. I, I will definitely try them out someday if I anticipate someone is bringing those broken defensive mechanics. Next, we go to the top three weapon fire modes. This one is interesting, and I think following actually from the previous question, you start seeing what people are using as their weapon base when they're playing Battletech. It makes a lot of sense that most people are selecting missile types as their favorite ammo type, because there's so many different missile types listed in the Battle Mech Manual. Same with these fire modes. You're going to see ones that are more commonly listed first. Hands down, the favorite was the rack. So that's the rotary autocannon firing in either flusters of four, five, or six. That was hands down people's favorite. Next is an ultra AC on ultra mode. So that's firing two bullets at a time. Third is the venerable rapid fire machine gun. I was really surprised to see other people mentioned this is a fire mode. I know I select this as my favorite, but it is really a, a little bit of a weird use case. So cool to see it reach the top of the list. One thing that was sort of a unique observation as well is that people that named Rack and the Ultra AC as their favorite fire mode also referenced missile as their favorite ammo type, which makes sense because you don't need to use special ammo types for the Rack and the Ultra AC. You may as well rely on their standard firing modes to get the kick you need. 
I also did did one one quick peek in here because you lumped all these Rack Five fibers together. But I'll have you know that of the Rack Five respondents, about forty percent of them chose the mathematically optimal five round burst, and sixty percent chose the weaker full auto six round fire mode. So there was even a division in there about those who do the right thing and those who follow the rotary auto cannon in their heart. <laughs> The split between logic and passion. That's the line, five and six. Are you logical? Are you passionate? Where do you sit on the threshold? That's going to go in our BuzzFeed, what Battletech mech are you? Going to be how many rounds do you fire from your rotary autocannon? It'll decide whether you're, you're passionate or brainy. And if you choose Ultra AC, then you're wrong. Ultra AC is bad. All your respondents who said Ultra AC, you're wrong. Ultra AC bad. Um, you can direct your complaints to <laughs> somewhere that's not our email. Michael please. at bungletech.bungle. Michael at the ultimate socialbungler.com. <laughs> we do all kind of bungles on the show, folks. All right, what do we got next? Up next is top three design quirks. And this one was actually really broad. I, I know there's certain quirks that tend to come up most often at our table, and I saw some of these on the list, but as well, also some other ones that were, were neat to see. In total, we had 29 different quirks people responded with. Top three were narrow slash low profile, followed by rugged, followed by a tie between command mech and distracting. And none of these were, were like extremely popular. Like I say, we had 29 different quirks, but narrow, low profile, rugged, and command mech distracting all had a bit of a lead over, over mostly solo responses for the rest. Overall, the majority of the, the quirks that were named, um, about 71% had actual like on-table mechanical effects, whereas about 19% of them were campaign-type effects, things that might happen outside of the table. So that was sort of an interesting split. I know narrow low profile is a bit, um, it's a hot button topic in the community. I know I love narrow low profile mechs, but I also recognize it's a very powerful bonus. Rugged though, coming in second, I, I think that's really neat. I like the idea of a, of a rugged mech. And I, I think that campaign effects is really where a lot of these uh, these design quirks probably belong in a, in a game design space. So I'm curious, we had for mechanical effects, we had 71% and campaign effects 19%. What were the other 20%? The other 10% you mean, and that's because it is 29% for the campaign effect. We're bungling the math here on Bungle Tech, folks. 71 and 29. But that's cool. It's cool to see that a third of people are choosing quirks that mainly will impact them in the campaign. And that sort of lines up to how people... Yeah, totally. play these games you know Battletech was initially made to be a campaign game it's really set up for it so it's good to see that people are actually playing it and utilizing these abilities yeah I think it's pretty neat I know some of these have started to shift already narrow low profile has already had a, a, a bit of a change to the rules so I don't know I, I really like the idea of the quirks and I'm, I'm glad a whole bunch of other people also do but there were there were some people who called out that like they feel unbalanced and I, I definitely do agree there's some mechs that just because of the quirks they're already strong before you start giving them effectively like a minus one bonus on on all the rolls to hit them. I understand why they're a bit divisive. One thing I want to mention about this one is an individual referenced no torso twist as their favorite design quirk. And no torso twist 
no longer exists as a design fork. It's been removed from all the current publications of of the game because it was too game-breaking in terms of a bad way is what they were saying. But I have a funny story with this because in playing a campaign years and years ago, we had a player who was playing a Mailstorm. And at the time, it had a no-torso twist design quirk. After that experience, he was totally traumatized because he max-minned his selection and totally missed it. All of a sudden, he couldn't torso twist, and that makes a big difference in the game. In all the other games we'd play, he'd randomly choose a mech, and somehow he would randomly choose a mech with no torso twist as the design quirk. And I think there was a way to figure it out in the old books. It said, like, you had no hip actuators or something like that. Anyhow, there was something you could look on the record sheet and automatically tell if they didn't have the capability of torso twist. But we didn't know the rules were changed probably years ago. So over the past two years, until literally like the last six months, every time we've been playing a game and he's accidentally chosen a mech that in the old rules would have had no torso twist, we've enforced it on him. We've been forcing him to stay in his historical hell for years because we didn't know that rule was updated. So, to you person who is as well currently living in this hell with no torso twist, even though it's your favorite, maybe it's like a sweet hell, I don't know. It's a, like a pleasure hell. You can now escape it, too. It no longer exists. Huzzah! What do we got next, Michael? Honestly, I don't know why you asked this question. This was, this was a very weird question to begin with, which is top three favorite movement modes. Uh, and the winner with 48%, uh, a resounding lead, was jumping, followed by walking and running at 17 and 15%, respectively. I'm pretty sure you meant for this to be about like weird advanced movement types because I know you love those, but only 6% of respondents actually had an advanced movement type as their favorite. Yes, I was both surprised and not surprised. You know, I'm surprised that walk was, was second place, but at the same time, it makes sense because walk is good. I jump being at the top Oh, it doesn't surprise me as well, but at the same time, plus three movement modifier, but there's some extenuating circumstances that may help explain that a little bit more when we get down to further questions. But yeah, interesting selections. As you say, only 6% of people chose advanced movement modes, which I think makes sense. Most people don't play with those advanced rules. There was only one respondent, uh, Spoth3D, who mentioned underwater movement units. I dream of one day getting to be in an underwater mission, so I appreciated that response. That was very interesting as well. I didn't know that there were mechs that had specific underwater movement modes. I would like to adventure with you on this one day, Michael. <laughs> Let us go on an underwater adventure together. <laughs> A horrifying, horrifying underwater adventure i wonder if that movement mode allows them to negate psrs probably right huh yeah i i'm trying I, i've read the rules for them before i want to say they sort of work like jump jets underwater but i might be misremembering and making things up which would be a, an extra bungle and honestly we're, we're racking up bungles here so fast on on this episode that i don't think i want to actually say anything i retract my former statement 
Yeah, don't commit to anything. Retract, retract, back up, back up. <laughs> get out of here, get out of here, close the recording. Interestingly, backing up, up the hill to correctness, one of the favorite rules. That's a, that's a spoiler for the future. Yeah, very cool and makes sense. Why can't I walk up a hill backwards? Just like, why can't I run up a level seven building? <laughs> I should be able to do these things. Maybe not, maybe not. All right, what's next, Nathan? Next one, we have the pilot skills top three. Number one, pilot skill, jumping jack. That's the pilot skill that gives you an attacker modifier of only plus one instead of plus three when you jump. Very, very, very strong. Oblique attacker, that's the one I chose, where you can do indirect fire better than you can do direct fire. It's wacky. And then tied for third, human TRO and lucky. Human TRO basically gives you a plus one on your crits, and lucky allows you to reroll stuff. I did some analysis on this, and I ended up classifying each pilot skill shared into the categories of game-changing, very strong, strong, useful, or weak. 2% of people chose game-changing pilot skills. 40% chose very strong. 17% chose strong. 32% chose useful. And 9% chose weak. People that selected Jumping Jack, Oblique Attacker, and Lucky were also the most likely to select mechanical design quirks, as in design quirks that had a mechanical benefit. Human TRO, on the other hand, were just as likely to select campaign or mechanically focused design quirks. Pretty interesting. I have another fun callback. Firstly, I'm very disappointed in all of you who picked Jumping Jack. I do not like that pilot skill. It makes for a bad time. It breaks the game. How can you like this? But at least they're consistent where 78% of Jumping Jack choosers also chose jumping as their favorite movement mode. So it all checks out. There was one person, however, Neil Smith, whose favorite pilot skill is Jumping Jack, but their favorite mo movement mode, Standing Still. A man of contradiction. What is going on in Neil's head? Maybe it's psychological gameplay. That's his strategy. You know I have jumping jack. So you think I'm going to jump? No, I'm just standing here, baby. That's right. Even if he loses initiative, he's at an advantage. <laughs> what do we got next? Up next is defensive equipment. Top choice for defensive equipment very narrowly was anti-missile systems of various flavors. Second place was ECMs also in various flavors, and in third was Hardened Armor, which is actually something I'm not familiar with. I don't think we've ever played with that, but I looked up the rules. It seems cool. And in fact, if you sort of group together, a, a total of 30% of people answered some sort of armor, be it Hardened Armor, uh, Stealth Armor, Armor Armor, or Pharaoh Lamellor Armor. I've played with none of these. I know of stealth armor. Oh, okay, that's, I, I've played with regular armor, and I know about stealth armor, but hardened armor and feral lamellor, new kinds of armor. Apparently lots of people, they just like, they like their mech not being an exposed, soft inner shell. People like their armor. It's popular. I have played with one special type of armor before, but it was the weak internal armor that took double damage, and that was not a good time. That being said, uh, it makes sense because you change your armor type, you really it really changes your strategy overall. You can really like do more funky things. You can tailor your weapon type, your build out to more favorable scenarios, in my opinion. 
Also, shout out to uh, Metal Ed, who brings battle armor for the sole purpose of being additional armor. A very, very, very good utilization of battle armor, especially chuck that on a battle cobra. <laughs> Man, that's one tough battle cobra. Once it gets close, it's swarm attack. They're swarming. All right. Next question. Top three standard rules. We're getting weird. The rule questions were weird. We knew they were weird. So we had to do some aggregation of stuff. But really, the favorite rule, essentially, of standard rules was how weapon attacks in general are handled. So for example, weapon arcs, gator, range bands, simultaneous resolution, all that stuff was clustered into this. People just love how Battletech handles the weapon attacks. Next, we have critical hits. This included stuff like general function of the critical hits, through armor, equipment destruction, mechanically how they play out. Those grouped together to be the number two choice. And third was a tie between death from above and partial cover. And those were two things that really couldn't be clustered into other rules, but they were tied, which is very interesting. So in third place, death from above, how those rules are handled, and how partial cover rules are handled and how that changes the game. Any surprises here, Michael? I mean, it's it's the basic rules, so they're they're not too surprising. Um, I did note that uh, Philip Large hates fun and said weapon jamming, which I guess is a valid answer. It's just not a fun answer. That's cool. The fact that weapon attacks were high to me is very interesting because that's a fundamental part of Battletech. And I think it's very interesting. Like the simultaneous resolution is really, really important to how Battletech plays out. Range bands, arcs, and all that stuff, that really technical stuff, at least on the table, that's really unique to Battletech. So it's cool to see it's at the top. Next, moving to the top three advanced rules. Okay, this was even weirder, right? Because lots of people don't play with this. But at the top, tied artillery and floating criticals. Next, we had all the rules in campaign operations and then the rules for ECCM. And in third place, we had a huge tie across advanced battle armor weights, alternative initiative, backward movement over hills, expanded critical damage, stack polling, throwing vehicles, that sounds like fun, and weather. With this, I'm actually really happy to see floating criticals up top, and I'm also not surprised, because floating criticals are one of those basic rules that is advanced, but everyone seems to play with it as a base. Were there any surprises for you here, Michael? Uh, I did have one one that... Uh... Okay, firstly, campaign operations was a popular one, and uh, I, I think that's one that I, I've we've not really gotten into well, at least I haven't gotten into yet. So I, I'm, I'm excited to try those. But the uh, the sort of the fun one for me is that stack polling ended up on actually both the advanced and the standard rules lists, uh, which was sort of sort of neat. And I think that's because stack pooling used to be in the advanced rules, right? But with battle mech manual, it's now an optional rule in the base rule kit. Am I remembering that correctly? I think that makes sense. That sounds right to me. But don't quote me. Once again, we're not committing to bungles this episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in the Battle Mech Manual now. So I, I, it, it has actually transitioned from advanced rule to optional core rule. Very cool. Now we're going to move into the more lore-oriented questions. 
where it will rapidly become apparent that I don't know what I'm talking about. But let's start with the favorite eras. And this got interpreted a bit differently between different people, whether it was their favorite lore era or their favorite era to play in or eras they have a, a particular axe to grind against uh, in some cases. But running through in, in chronological order, Star League, very unpopular, only one respondent for 1%. Succession Wars, reasonably popular with 15%. Clan Invasion, quite a, a, a popular choice, 31%. The Fedcom Civil War, short but intense, pretty well loved with 12%. Similarly, the Jihad, a, a, a radical changing of the setting at 12%. Dark Age, not extremely popular, but a few people liked it with 7%. And then the latest and greatest Ill Clan actually at 22%. So second place favorite era was actually the Ill Clan era. And, and broadly, I, I found it sort of interesting that the clan invasion, the civil war, and the ill clan are some of the shortest periods, but all have lots and lots of fans. Lots of people love these short, intense, sort of monumental shifts to the setting. So I, I thought that was, that was sort of cool, even though I don't know that much about the details of all of them. I'm actually really surprised when I saw this numbers that ill clan was essentially the second most popular. Because it, from what I hear with the community, I thought lots of people weren't a big fan of it. So it turns out that that seems to be incorrect. Not surprised that Clan Invasion is the, the top because that's where lots of people came in. That's where lots of the video games are focused. That was my choice. So I know it's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, no, I think, I think it's good. I think it's really, really interesting to split. The fact that Dark Age showed up at all? Wow. Uh, pretty cool. <laughs> pretty cool. I think there were more people that specifically called out not liking Dark Age than the people who came to the defense of Dark Age, but I'm, I'm glad it's got some representation in there. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I think it makes sense that not many people like the Star League era because there's not much happening in the Star League era. Really, Battletech, I think, from most people's perspective, starts at the Succession Wars. Like that's the core theme of Battletech that then flows through everything, even to Ill Clan. So the Star League respondent specifically mentioned like the Amaris Civil War. I don't know if there's a lot to like play with there. Like I, I assume there's all the toys, but I don't know if there's like a lot of source books or anything. It's a bit surprising to me. Like I, I, it's this big moment. You'd think that it would have been plumbed for some content at some point, but maybe not. Looks like not that many people play there. I also want to say that reading reading about Ill Clan, it seems from the responses that there's a fair number of people who feel like sort of the lore is getting back on track. It's getting a lot more of the battle tech feel they used to like again, as well as it has lots of fancy toys to play with. So that's something that I'm interested in, is I actually want to try some sort of high tech games because usually we find we, we don't have like a set time period we play in. We don't have a date cut off, but we usually play sort of late succession wars, clan invasion, maybe civil war era mechs. We don't usually go beyond that. And I, I'm sort of curious to try out one of the high tech games with stealth armors and, and blazers and stuff. Blazer boys! Blazer boys. With my gang leader, Jason Hanza. Yo, you mess with Hanza, you mess with the Blazer boys. <laughs> Up next, top three 
factions. So uh, at the top was a tie between the Federated Sons and the Free World League, uh, netting about 13% each. And then third was Nebulous Mercenary Groups with 8%. And I, I think this, this question probably suffered a lot from the fact that like there's a lot of factions out there, especially with, if, you're a, if you're a clan fan and you start naming your, your clan Trash Panda or whatever. So clans probably didn't really have a, a chance at this because they were, they were just too fractured. So if we actually group it up by types of factions, the Great Houses are still in the lead with 32%. But all the various clans are following right behind at 28%. And then sort of all the different mercenary groups, factions, whatever, combined group into about 21%. So those are, those are three pretty strong uh, groupings at the top. And I think this vibes with me. Like, it makes sense to me. Like, at least with, when you look at these three, this, these three take up about 70%. 81 81. Yeah, and when you go to groups or you're playing, it, people tend to, you know, align with the Great House, align with the Clan, or align with Mercenaries. They're pretty distinct in this regard, so I feel like this fits. It reflects the community well. Clanners are the best, though. All right, Nathan, tell me about paint jobs. Okay, this one was one of the most diverse answers. So pretty much everyone, I mean, that's not true. But the, the vast majority of people had very unique answers for the color schemes and the paint jobs of their mechs. So overall, though, 59% preferred defined faction paint schemes, whereas 41% preferred open-ended non-faction-specific themes. Of the non-faction-specific themes, camo types were the top in the non-faction group. In terms of faction schemes, the Davian Guards were the top. Blue with parade stripes was very popular. Of faction-specific paint jobs, 62% preferred inner sphere faction paint jobs. 38% preferred clan paint jobs. Inner sphere stays winning. That is the theme of this survey, is that people in general seem to prefer the inferior ways of the inner sphere. And this just... <laughs> reinforces how important it is for us in the clans to educate the world and spread our wisdom. Right, Michael? Absolutely not. Give me a say la, Michael. Give me a say la. Heck no. Absolutely <laughs> not. No peace in our time. <laughs> I'm just going to edit in the say la you did from this skit and put it in. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm Michael, and I say... Say la! <laughs> I'm an actor. I can be anyone. I don't sound like that. <laughs> All right, Michael, what about next? Okay, uh, up next we've got favorite heroes and favorite villains. Once again, completely wasted on me. I recognize some of these names. So in, in top heroes, at the very top we had Felon Kell and Aiden Pride tied. And then a multi-way tie between Anastasius Focht, Grayson Carlisle, Kai Allard-Lau, and Victor Davian Steiner. 
quite a broad answer there. Actually, we had tons of answers for this. Like all sorts of people had them, had different ones they liked. But Felon, Kell, and Aiden Pride had a distinct lead here. And overall, people tended to have heroes that were in the great houses, clans behind that, and mercenary heroes behind that. And honestly, that probably just represents like the number of heroes in, in each of those categories. I suspect the most protagonists have been associated with great houses then clans, then mercenary companies. So I, I don't know how meaningful that is. Any surprises for you here, Nathan? I don't know who these people are. Well, Phelan, Kel, and Aiden Parade are both clanners. Well, this is interesting because we know how the Inner Sphere has really been the top theme so far, but check it out. Phelan, Kel, and Aiden Parade are the top heroes, and they're from the clans. So I guess there is some wisdom in the <laughs> Inner Sphere after all. I mean, one quick clarification, it's actually, it's actually Victor Steiner Davian, not Victor Davian Steiner. Although, uh, I, I just went by the answers and the first person who answered Victor called them Victor Davian Steiner. So that was some sort of like political statement, probably. And, uh, you know, I've just inadvertently, I've, I've stuck my foot in the mouth. We're going to get canceled in, in the, the Federated Sons or, I don't know, we're getting canceled somewhere. That totally could be, yeah. I think that was an insidious political statement. <laughs> how, how consistent with the great houses. Jeez. You knew what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, top three villains. Top three villains. Uh, this one was a bit more tiered out. So the first by a wide margin was Duke Rickol. Rickol? Rickol? Duke Rickol? Recall. Don Rickol? Duke Don Rickle. Duke Recall. Duke Recall uh, was was Call Recall. 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 Duke Recall was by far the uh, the favorite villain. There were like four or five different names for them in the list. So everyone everyone respects this guy. They love to hate him, and they they understand where he's coming from. Second place was Catherine Steiner Davian, fearless leader. This one was not actually that surprising. Even I know about Catherine Steiner Davian now. And then in third place was a tie between Stefan Amaris, Sun Tzu Lao, and Vlad Ward. I know one of these people. Nathan, do any of these mean anything? They all mean something, yes. And it makes sense that they are all chosen as villains, to be 100% honest. Stefan Amaris obviously is the person who, you know, destroyed the Star League originally led to the Exodus, the, the traitor. Sun Tzu Lao is one of the leaders in the Kaplan Confederation. He was first lord of the rekindled Star League, I think. And you know, the Kaplans are always getting the short end of the stick. They're completely innocent. And Vlad Ward is a clanner. So on this list, there's actually only one clanner bad guys, once again, showcasing... The wisdom of the inner sphere. <laughs> Jeez, clanners are so good and noble. Wow. I also found it really cool looking through the two lists of, of heroes and, and villains, and there were four people who managed to make both lists. Devlin Stone, Sun Tzu Lao, again, the Dancing Joker, and then uh, Victor Davian Steiner. The Dancing Joker is a hilarious, cruel thing to put as a hero because he kills... Melissa Steiner, he kills Ami Kurita, he kills like all the good characters. <laughs> so whoever put the dancing Joker as a good guy, as a hero, that's some twisted <laughs> shiznit. 
villains if you if you group them up again most of the villains are in the great houses second most is clans and then third most is religious organization I wonder which religious organization. I guess this this sort of makes sense because, uh, you know, mercenaries make pretty good, like, heroes. They maybe don't make great villains because mercenaries, you know, you, you can be a, a down-on-your-luck mercenary doing what you gotta do, but, like, you're not gonna be, like, a recurring mercenary villain most of the time. Like, you go where you get paid. You're not gonna be, like, you know, cursing the name of, of whoever. Exactly. You're just getting paid to shoot people. That's simple. And you can do it nobly or you can do it, yeah. That's 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 what heroes do. That's how heroes solve their problems. But you're not going to do it evilly. You're just doing it mercenarily. Economically, yeah. Getting down into some more of the fun stuff. Top three Battletech specific occupations. So top choice, mech tech. Following right behind that, mech warrior of some description this includes like a regular old mech warrior commander of mechs warriors or even a solaris gladiator you want to be in the cockpit of a mech you want to be shooting lasers at people and then third place raises some questions uh was comstar acolyte 10 percent of respondents favorite occupation comstar acolyte i don't really know what to what to to, to take of that People just want to be a part of something, man. A part of a family that knows and cares and has a message. Oh, <laughs> this is great. It's such a warm feeling. I also want to point out that one third of the people who answered mech tech specifically answered Aztecs, the assistant ones, because I guess even in the, the far-flung future, they don't want to be running the shop. <laughs> they just want to be told what to do and friggin' like refill the hydraulic exactly, fluid. That's like, all that they're here for. Mech tech. That sounds complicated. I need a degree for that. No, I'll just, you know, I'll just scrub the floor, fill up the oil. I can do that. I just want to be around the mix. And uh, if we if we group together all of them, uh, only about 31% of people actually wanted to see combat. And this included the one person who wanted to be on the Russell Haig American Football League, uh, while 69% of people decided they didn't want to be anywhere near the combat. And that includes one pizza lawyer. Which is a profession, I guess, <laughs> in the Battletech universe that we need to write some fan fiction about now. A pizza lawyer. <laughs> pizza lawyer to your defense. Specializing in cheesy law. That could work. Some other fun responses. Rose listed their favorite villain as ninjas and also chose it as their favorite occupation. And they were not the only one because Trapped in the XY also wants to join the Nekakami and be a ninja assassin. So ninja assassin, also a popular occupation. And I will say that I think in actually this world, you could train to be a ninja assassin. So don't let the fact that Battletech sci-fi exists in the future stop you from becoming a ninja assassin today. On the other end of the spectrum, Matt the Northman just wants to drive the coolant tank truck, respectable and simple. Um, <laughs> Neil Smith and Ben D both just want to be space farmers, which isn't like being a farmer is Ooh. not particularly unique, but I guess if you're doing it in space, um, that's different. Yeah, I want to do some space farming too. 
And uh, one anonymous respondent um, just wants to drive the space bus full of clan coyote acolytes to planets where they do weird rituals, which I don't know anything about. But, uh, you know, that does sound like a trip. So power to him. Interesting that they decided to be anonymous. <laughs> the one who wants to be part of a weird cult. Hmm. So next we have favorite lore moments. Okay. So this was as well extremely diverse. But there were two things that came to the top. I didn't even reference a third because I couldn't. The two things that really came to the top, the Hans Davian wedding. That includes the I give you the Capellan Confederation. And Jamie Wolf throwing down Minobu's swords. The second favorite lore moment was the Battle of Tukiyid. I took some time to make some highlights regarding these because we couldn't really aggregate them well. But one thing that I found was a really, really fun observation that makes me laugh is not a single person who identified the clans as their favorite faction mentioned that the Battle of Tukiyid was their favorite lore moment. Oh, I wonder why. Also, a few little highlights. Battletech of the Day on Instagram he just wrote this as his favorite moment, and this to me is so ridiculous and hilarious, I just have to read it out. Marauder catapult, marauder catapult, marauder catapult, mad cat. That was the moment the universe changed. Oh my god. That moment is so hilarious and just so true. Literally the moment the universe changed. Just imagine the computer trying to process. So hilarious. <laughs> also, Will shared this, and I haven't experienced this yet, but... The lore moment seems really interesting, what Will shared, so I just want to read out what he said. The meeting between Grace and Carlisle and Victor Steiner Davian in Blood of Heroes and Assumption of Risk. Each book shows a different point of view of the same events. Victor's point of view is mostly him complaining about every aspect of the ceremony, assuming Grayson agrees with him, whereas Grayson's perspective is a running tally of every political, cultural, and religious faux pas that Victor makes. It really solidifies how stuck Victor is in his own personal perspective and how politically adroit Grayson's become since Thunder Rift. I love this because I hate Victor. So <laughs> just reading this, I'm like, oh, more proof that Victor is not the brightest light bulb in the box. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. I tried to read through all these lore moments and... I couldn't even like tell whether like which ones were real and which ones were memes. So unfortunately, I have nothing to add to this. There are so many good ones here. And if people decide to look through the data, I just I just really, really enjoyed reading these because seeing them as people's favorites, most of them I recognized. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, that moment was sick. That moment was so cool. So lots of moments there came up, which I really, really enjoyed. So thank you for sharing. What do we got next, Michael? All right. Uh, now we're pivoting into the game a bit more, or at least like the franchise of Battletech. So we have top three media types. And at the top with 34% was the novels. Lots of people like them Battletech books like you, Nathan. Second place was video games with 15%. This isn't too surprising. Talking to quite a few people, it seems like a lot of their a lot of people's introductions to the game came from video games. And then in third place was the tabletop, which I'm not really sure if it's a valid answer, but I mean, I guess the tabletop game is a type of media. So we accept this answer at 14%. Yeah, and there's no surprises here. 
although I did expect video games would be higher, it's really good to see novels up top because the Battletech novels and the writing, the fiction, the literature is just so good in my opinion. It's so diverse. It's just a pleasure to read and go on those journeys. So thank you to all the authors out there. And uh, diving, diving a bit more detail into those video games, we asked uh, what, what everyone's favorite video games were. And these answers come out a little bit differently depending on how you slice and dice it. You only look at individual games, uh, Hairbrain Schemes Battletech takes the lead with 28%, and MechWarrior 5 actually came in as the second most responded, and Mech Commander 1 after that. This was a little bit surprising to me. Uh, I, I didn't realize that MechWarrior 5 was... I'd heard some negativity amongst uh, both gaming and battle-teching communities around this game, but uh, it actually beat out every other individual MechWarrior game. However, if we group it up, MechWarrior has an absolutely commanding lead at 54%, uh, and it, it absolutely demolishes everything else. Everyone loves MechWarrior, and over the different generations, people like MechWarrior for the best. It's just that that's spread out across three different games, whereas MechWarrior 5 is still the only MechWarrior 5 game. And if we, if we group it up, I guess this is sort of the same thing. People like their mech sims. Uh, mech sims are the most popular kind of game. Turn-based strategy after that, and the real-time tactics mech commander games in third. Not unpopular, but but quite far behind both the the mech warrior and harebrained schemes games. Yeah, you know, I'm actually surprised that mech commander was third, to be honest, because it's quite old. But um. It's a game I miss, and I've, I have heard really good things about it, so it's really cool that it still sits in people's memories. And like you as well, surprised that MechWarrior 5 was up there. Once again, a good game for sure, but I definitely thought MechWarrior 2 Mercenaries was going to beat it, so surprised that that callout didn't beat it. And uh, no surprise about Battletech Hairbrain Schemes, because everyone loves that game, and it's so similar to the tabletop in many ways that... Like, they did a great job. Good job, Hairbrain Schemes. Good job. Pat on the back. Pat on the back. <laughs> and uh, pretty much the only games that, that didn't make the uh, my, my uh, meandering lists of three is Mech Assault, which only had one, one respondent that, uh, that liked it, and Mega Mech, which had two respondents. Maybe, I, although I, I wonder if, if probably for a lot of people, Mega Mech doesn't even occupy like video game in their minds because really it is just the tabletop game in a different format. So for a lot of, a lot of people, they might not even think of Mega Mech as a video game. So next we have the awkward question I asked you all that many of you identified you were uncomfortable to answer, <laughs> <laughs> which was your favorite Battletech podcast. So first I just want to say, Everyone who didn't say Bungle Tech, this was a test, and you failed the test. Just kidding. Thank you for sharing your honest feelings. So, as no surprise, the most popular podcast was the Venerable Mech Bay. I talked to Josh at the Mech Bay about this, and I shared it when he was leading. I was like, oh yeah, the Mech Bay really has a, a strong lead in this favorite Battletech podcast. And Josh said to me, it's not a competition. And I just want to say to you, Josh, you're right. It wasn't a competition. It was a slaughter. That being said, all the Battletech podcast names came up. Just to reference some that were mentioned, 
armor up, Black Pants Legion, Mech Frog, Mercenary Star, Mechs and Men on the Origins, Fur Free Podcast Corporation, which is really new, Renegade HPG, Unicorn Company, Valhalla Club, Wolfnet, and more. There were quite a lot. I did a little bit of data analysis with this, and one thing I found interesting is podcasts that I myself would define as being entertainment-themed podcasts, so less competitive, less technical in nature. People that identify these types of podcasts as their favorite chose a clan mech as their favorite around 50% of the time, whereas listeners that preferred more technical-focused podcasts as their favorite instead only selected a clan mech as their favorite mech 10% of the time. So it seems like those that have more of the entertainment interest or preferences tend to be more interested in clan mechs because clan mechs are more fun. Come on, guys. Little interesting distinction there. What do we got next, Michael? Diving back into sort of our bread and butter on this, uh, on this program, favorite scenario type. People had a, had a lot of interesting answers here and some ideas that I'm, I want to actually uh, pick up and try to use. Broadly grouping them together, the favorite ones were straight-up skirmishes uh, between, between uh, individuals or teams. In second place was securing objectives or king-of-the-hill-type missions. And then in third was raid-type missions. So uh, in, in terms of, of just looking at the type of mission listed, uh, Skirmish did come out in the lead. But when you group them together in terms of like objective-based versus combat-focused, it actually flips. And, and more than half of people prefer sort of more objective-oriented games with a, only about 26% preferring the, the strictly combat-focused things. And I, I think this is an interesting split, you know, battle text for everyone. So I, uh, there's nothing wrong with the people who said, I want to do anything that isn't just shooting at each other. And another group of people who said, just get me on the battlefield so I can shoot more. I'm here to roll dice. And that's what I want to do. That was that was a fun split. Uh, you know, it's a it's a diverse community. So I'm, I'm glad people can find different different things to entertain them across the spectrum. Yeah, one thing I find really interesting about this data is that Battletech is itself the framework, the rules. It really focuses on setting up those more skirmish-oriented games. Unless you grab something like the Campaign Operations, which tends to have some objective stuff, but I still think doesn't do it as well as it can. I think there's room for it to grow in that area. So it's very interesting to see how the majority of people, that's what they enjoy the most. when. I would say that when you see this game being played generally, it is generally the more combat-based encounters. So pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Pretty interesting stuff. Next, we got our favorite topic. Ooh, the initiative deck. How many people answered stuff here? So exciting. Remember, our initiative deck survey only got one response. So we had high expectations for... <laughs> this question <laughs> and what did we get michael well uh the resounding number one response was i haven't tried it yet with more than 39 percent of respondents saying that they don't have it and they haven't tried it and maybe they never will uh, but in terms of actual responses technically the winner of favorite card is fog of war people love the moon fog i guess two people love the moon fog and in second place was an eight-way tie. 
The fact that anyone wrote Moonfog as their favorite card, and actually people actually referenced Moonfog specifically. <laughs> it breaks my heart that you make light of our trauma. If it makes you feel any better, technically more people responded that no one uses these and were weird for doing so. That doesn't make me feel better, Michael. <laughs> that has the opposite effect. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the favorite suit was the Free Worlds League in purple. And guess what's in the Free Worlds League purple suit? Moonfog. God. Moonfog. Damn it. Can't escape it. Can't escape it. <laughs> it's the best color. It's the best color, purple. What can I say? Well, that's fun. I'm glad that we got more than one response. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you, world. And I'm glad some people are trying it out, actually. Like, lots of people have started trying out the initiative deck, and it can be crazy fun. No joke. Just burn yeah. the purple deck. They will play it once and never again. <laughs> hey, man. Or they'll play it every game committed like we do. Every game, regardless how it's painful sometimes. Up next is the top three environments to fight in. The, uh, the, the leading sort of terrain type was your classic hills and forests, uh, some amount of elevation change, some valleys, some high points, and then lots of forests providing mixed cover. People like the classics. Fair enough. Second place was urban environments. Fun, tight corners, placing mechs with big guns and, and good coverage. Extremely understandable. And then in third was people who like planes. They don't want too many hills. They don't want any forests. They don't want too many obstacles uh, blocking their shots. They just want a battlefield. It's called a battlefield for a reason, because it's an open field you do battle upon, and you spill blood and hydraulic fluid all over it. <laughs> so this was, uh, this was, you know, though, even though, so those are, those are sort of the, the three biggest groups and not, not too surprising in there, but there, there were also a, a pretty big spectrum on here. Uh, it was sort of, sort of fun seeing like people run the whole gamut between like, I want a simple map to do my shooting on to, I want tactically interesting maps where I can maneuver and, and try to gain an advantage over my opponent. Uh, and then a, a fair number of responses that were like, you know, the, the sort of like really bonkers stuff that totally changes how you have to play the game. If like there's a risk that you're going to fall off of your spaceship uh, or there's giant pools of acid or, or alien fungi, like all sorts of stuff like that. So that was, that was a fun spectrum to see. Yeah, it's cool. And I never realized that Battlefield had the word field in it, and now it makes sense. I feel like those people <laughs> it all makes that selected sense. planes are conservationists. They come to a game, someone set up a city map, and they're like, this isn't a battlefield. This is a city. What are you doing? This isn't a battlefield. This is a forest. Think of all the animals. What are you doing? And they just walk out. This walk out. I can't take this, man. I can't take this. Another couple uh, fun points. One is there, there were a few people who specifically mentioned the Tukiad map pack, uh, which I know we've played on, on a couple maps from, and they've got some, some really interesting stuff in there. So there's, there's a few people who specifically love that map pack, and it's a pretty varied one. Uh, like I think they've got sort of like a, a, a structure one, and they've got like a river crossing, and is there maybe a swamp in there? There's the 
the Devil's Bath. That's where the Steel Vipers were defeated. Thanks for bringing that <laughs> up, Michael. Yeah, the Tokyid Map Pack is actually very good. It's I would say of my, of the map packs, it's my favorite. It was designed not to be balanced, but that's okay. You can think you can add terrain to it and stuff like that to make it feel more balanced, but they're very, very, very diverse. So if you haven't played with the map pack yet, I would as well recommend it. I also want to call out one answer. Once again, Retro, living their best life, has fulfilled my dream and claims to have punched a submarine with a wolverine. So I too hope that one day I can ascend to these heights. I want to play an underwater mission and I want to punch a submarine. Damn. Considering that the Wolverine was one of the top favorite medium mechs, I think that may be the dream of many. <laughs> For who? Who does not? What pilot does not step into Wolverine and sit in there and be like, on land again? I was made to be underwater fighting submarines. That's why I signed up for this unit. Mech on mech combat bullshit. All right. <laughs> up next, continuing on from favorite environments, we go to favorite environmental effects. Top two for these was a tie between people who like things being on fire and people who like things being extremely cold. A community of, of diametrically opposed individuals is what Battletech is. <laughs> uh, and in third place was low gravity, which, you know, I guess people, it's, it's fun unless you have ballistic weapons. So that's fair enough. Low gravity's chill. But uh, this also tells me that a, a good chunk of respondents um, just like to dump heat so that they can shoot more of their energy weapons. I, I know what you're on about. Yeah, I think many people, when they reference the cold, too, they directly called out, like, so I can shoot more. Nice. Utility choice. <laughs> but if you can shoot more, they can shoot more, too, my friend. Something to consider. I mean, I can. I main ballistics, so low gravity, bad for me. Extreme cold, bad for me. Being on fire, bad for me. You know what you should do? You should fight submarines underwater. I think that's the use case that you'll really find <laughs> success. Finally, a place that my autocannons have an edge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I'm pretty sure the autocannons don't work yeah, underwater. I think so. One more comment. Of the people who listed in the last question urban environments as their favorite place to fight, 38% of you also chose fire as your favorite environmental effect. So that is asking for war crimes. Don't mix those. Yes, that's, uh, that's a problematic choice. We've uh, taken your information and forwarded it to your, uh, your mercenary review board. <laughs> cool. So now we're going into novels. So the top three novels or stories in general. Some people selected some trilogies. So coming at the top, the favorite story or novel was the Blood of Kerensky trilogy. Hands down the favorite, and that's a classic, so I can really understand that. Followed up by Wolves on the Border. Yeah, another classic that we all know about, and obviously lots of the choices for favorite lore moment were associated with that book as well. And then in third place, Ideal War, which is a book I actually haven't read, but because how popular this was, I'm definitely going to check it out. Sounds pretty interesting. It's about Knights of the Inner Sphere. The top three authors were Michael Stackpole in first place. No surprise there. William H. Keith Jr. in second place. No surprise there. And tied for third, Robert Charette and Robert Thurston. I will say, though, there were many authors referenced. In total, 27 different authors 
were mentioned as selections. So it was quite diverse. And I think that really showcases the talent in the writing community in Battletech. In terms of the top three publishing periods for this book, 31% of these books were published between 1986 to 1999, 21% from 2020 to 2023, and 18% from 1990 to 1994. Every other period other than this was under 10% total. What's interesting about that is that means that the second most favorite publishing period for books is actually the period we're in right now. And 55% of those favorite stories in that publishing period come from short stories published in our favorite shrapnel. So good job to all those authors that are writing those short stories. Quite a few were referenced and we read them in our stories of the Inner Sphere segment for a reason. The writing is really, really good. So thank you for your continued contributions to the Battletech universe authors. Anything pop out to you here? The people clamor for short stories. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if any of this stands out because I still haven't read any of these. Well, you're just going to start with <laughs> Far Country. So as long as you start with Far Country, you're good. Something popular. Something that everyone will love. And then go to Star-Lord, my favorite, which one person referenced Star-Lord, by the way, as their favorite Battletech book. You and me are both scummy, but... It's amazing. Let's just eat our Cheetos and have fun. <laughs> so on to the next question, what your favorite strategy was. So pretty much every strategy was different. People wrote from different perspectives. There were similar themes and stuff like that. So we can't really share top three. They ranged from defined lance compositions to set up complicated bait and switches to something as simple as take heavy mech into battle, go into cover, and shoot baddies hoping for headshots. I did take some time to classify them into either strategic strategies or unga-bunga strategies. And overall, 51% of people preferred strategic strategies and 49% preferred unga-bunga strategies. So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that other than I'm shrugging right now. My arm, my shoulders are raised. Uh. That is what it is. Take it as you want, people. What do you think, Mike? There, there were a lot of there were a lot of fun answers in there. Some, some of them were were, were much more serious. Uh, Shrapnel described a, a fairly detailed approach, uh, including hover-mounted battle armor in in flanking operations. Seems super cool. I've always wanted to do some like combined arms stuff. On the other side of the spectrum, Tom Dire Situation Bovi has a strategy of rolling lots of 12s, which is tactically questionable and perhaps explains the nickname Dire Situation. <laughs> Don't recommend coming to the table with that as your primary strategy, but it's certainly nice if it, if it pans out. Just so you know, Dire Situation, I classified your strategies on Gabunga. Just so it's clear. <laughs> Just so we're clear on that. <laughs> but it's so detailed. Yeah, exactly. There's only one win condition, 12s. <laughs> it's very clear the path. One out of 36 chance of victory. There were also uh, a couple mentions in here uh, from people playing Alpha Strike. And uh, they, they sort of talked it at a much bigger level. Some of them were playing like company level stuff, which sounds fun. I, I know that uh, our, our group doesn't play Alpha Strike really. But I, I think I'd love to, to try that sometime just to, to experience like big old, big old mech metal walls slamming into each other. 
I think that'd be fun. Yeah. It can be fun to slam metal into each other. 49% of people would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Ooh, the next questions are the funnest questions. Ooh, 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 ooh. Let's save the snack type for last, though, because we have some fun observations with that. Let's go to the community aspects, Michael. What did you find there? Yeah, so this one, this one actually, um, I, I really feel heartened by. It was, it was like surprisingly unanimous asking people sort of, you know, what's their favorite part about the community around Battletech? The top answers were all stuff I agree with and stuff that I'm really glad to hear other people experience as well. So a whopping two thirds of people came back talking about how friendly and and welcoming and inclusive the community can be. You know, it seems like like people generally have a, a really good time getting into it and staying with it, uh, which I'm really glad to hear. I know that sort of the uh, the wargaming communities can be can be a bit exclusionary sometimes, but from the parts I've dealt with in in BattleTech, everyone's been been really nice and friendly and and helpful, uh, even to someone who doesn't isn't a longtime fan uh, like me. So I'm I'm glad lots of other people have experienced that as well. And uh, in second place, uh, this was sort of my answer was um, saying that like people don't take it too seriously. We're, we're most of us aren't here to try to win too hard. We're here to have fun. We're here to roll some dice and generally make sure that like it's a fun time at the table. Uh, not just win whatever it takes. That's great to hear as well. And then a, a good chunk of people also talked about sort of the the diversity that you can find in in what the BattleTech franchise is for different people. You know, we we've talked about this on on BungleTech before about how uh, you can enjoy the lore, you like reading the books, you can enjoy just engaging with the the sort of technical material, you can like rolling dice, you can like video games. There's there's so many different aspects to this and for the most part from from all the people I've talked to the community really embraces that it's it's fantastic that so many different people can enjoy so many different aspects whether you're you're writing your own fiction whether you're playing the game whether you just like video gaming whatever it is you're part of the BattleTech community and and we all we all are joined together in our our love of of big metal mechs so overall this was this was like I just really liked reading all, all the answers people gave for this. It was it was really, really great. All, all the positive experiences people have had in the community. So glad to see that. I agree. And uh, seeing the friendliness and inclusion be two thirds, as you said, like so consistent was uh, was really heartening. It's great because I do feel like Battletech, despite its hundreds of pages of rule books, you can apply what you want. You can really come in it from multiple angles. Like you said, you can play campaigns you can play skirmishes strategic unga bunga whatever you want to do you can bring it to the table and you can have fun and you can have fun and i think you can mix with other groups with BattleTech and still have a good time even though it's maybe out of your preference i think you can still have fun on the table so that's awesome that it was reflected also um anonymous likes that people in the community can generally do addition which is fair i i think we probably have a slightly higher numeracy in this game than perhaps other war games. Yes. We add well. Add and minus, man. Yes. What is it again? It's what's the what's the acronym for basic math? Well, I mean for addition you don't need any acronym. You just add the numbers. So bed mass is what's bed mass? Brackets. Which don't happen in here. 
exponents, which don't happen in here. <laughs> D division, multiplication. Oh, actually, multiplication can happen. So where does it start for us? It starts for us at M. Dis so it's mass. just mass. <laughs> mass. And it fits perfectly. It's mass, man. It's battle tech. Mass tonnage. Oh my God, it all makes sense. Okay, much I got sense. bad news, Anonymous. There are probably people who play this game who aren't very good at math. <laughs> I'm not and one of them. And that's okay. We I'm, welcome you. <laughs> if you got to use a calculator, that's cool. Yeah, use a calculator, man. I'm not judging you. We we had we had a couple of people at our tables who uh, put put together little spreadsheets so they could do it on their their iPad or their their MacBook while we played. Which was so much slower than actually just writing it down on paper, but it was. They were so proud of it, and they just had fun typing it in. Whatever helps you get get a grasp on the rules and remember your your gators. Yeah, do it. Okay, next question. This was a spontaneous question that we added randomly through conversation. It wasn't planned, and this is how to terminate friendships playing Battletech. When I shared this survey, I shared it in some places, and you could tell some people didn't listen to the podcast first. Some people just went in and did the survey. Uh, so there were quite a few answers to this that were like, I don't terminate friendships playing Battletech. <laughs> there are some people that were slightly offended by this question. So it was a joke. But let's get into the results because the results are super, super interesting. Okay, so 49% of people felt that combining technology in the Battletech universe, like clan pulse lasers with targeting computers, stacking these things, those created circumstances that were likely to terminate friendships while playing Battletech. And what was interesting about this, surprisingly, is there was a relatively even distribution across factions for people that hated this type of strategy, with people who identified with a clan, a great house, or a mercenary company as their faction preference, all hating this equally. Interestingly enough, the favorite weapon type for people saying that technology is how to end friendships are ballistic weapons. Well, maybe you're stuck in the past, that's why, good sir. Secondly, 14% of people said that circumstance, random circumstance, was most likely to terminate friendships while playing Battletech. And this is stuff like lucky rolls, headshots on the first turn, insta-kills that were essentially based on chance. And doing some analysis based on this, the favorite weapon type for people that say circumstance kills friendships is actually energy weapons, which more often than not don't have the punching power to get these kills on one shot, with some exceptions being like the ERPPC and heavy lasers, but the vast majority don't. Next, 13% of people said artillery was likely to terminate friendships playing Battletech. And yes, we understand, Arrow 4, tag, it makes people frustrated. We've already talked about it. Let's move on. Next, 11% of people said personality choices, such as saying what they want to say, politics, urban mech DFA swarms, being an edgy murder hobo in the RPG, that was what would terminate friendships playing Battletech. And funnily, these people were also much more likely than others to name combat-based scenarios as their preference over objective-based scenarios, which makes sense. It's sort of like they're saying, guys, I'm just here to roll dice on the table. I don't necessarily want to think about it. So it sort of fits well. Next, 7% said taking too much time on the table was what killed friendships. And specific example, 
rolling Hague's LBX clusters or SRM clusters. Funnily enough, no person who says time kills friendships named ballistic weapons as their favorites. Because they're not going to use those LBX clusters, man. I'm not going to roll an LBX 20. Just a little interesting observation. And then the rest, which was 6%, said either infantry pilot abilities, ringing people out by pushing them out of the map, or using self-destruct as a weapon was a good way to terminate friendships playing Battletech. But as you can see, the vast majority technology combinations, which is interesting because this is a pretty common thing on the table, right? Clan pulse lasers with targeting computers. Minus threes on each shot. Wowza. Interesting stuff. And I, uh, I, I do want to say, uh, you, you sort of mentioned that, you know, you, this is, this is meant as a joke. And, and I, I, I hope that most of the people who are, who are answering these types of things, you know, do, do mean it for fun. But, you know, th- like there are four people who answered who said that they, they don't. And, you know, in a lot of ways, like I appreciate that answer of like, well, you don't want to end friendships. And, and, uh, uh, Rose, Rose put it as be the opponent that you want to play against. So all of these, uh, you know, a, a lot of these sorts of things are stuff that showed up at our table. And it's a bit of a case of like, know your audience, know, know your opponent when, when Nathan and I are playing. Yeah, you know, sometimes Nathan's going to pull out the weird stuff and it's going to be like weird and annoying, but we can laugh along and have fun. And I, I think that we've learned that, you know, sometimes your opponents don't appreciate that. So uh, in, in, in fitting with the, uh, the previous question about friendliness and inclusion and not trying too hard, I'd like to think that most of the people here, when they, when they answer their favorite way to end friendship, they're, they're not literally trying to win at any cost and ending friendships in the process. Or I, I really hope not. <laughs> I'd be surprised if any of them did. And if they are, clearly they're clanners. Because clanners <laughs> don't need friends, man. The clan is their life. Uh, that's the difference between you and me. It's all making sense now. That's yep. why you bring the arrow fours. Yep. Planner <laughs> mentality. Arrow four pulse. My favorite weapon, the arrow four pulse. I'm going to write it in. Homebrew weapon. Hell yeah. Cool. All right, last question. This one was a fun one. Honestly, I feel like the, uh, the analysis here, even dodgier than the other ones, analyzing people's favorite game day snacks categorized loosely in order as most popular salty snacks second sweet snacks third savory snacks and fourth healthy snacks yes why is healthy last guys (laughs) come on water was only mentioned twice we need water to live you have to live to play battletech well, there were nine respondents who mentioned alcohol, which is somewhat hydrating. <laughs> cool. And we did some fun little analysis on this. Grab some little weird observations. Let's share them, Michael. Before you, before you go into that, we also uh, we have one pro tip from Drew uh, Battletech of the Day, who recommends pretzel rods specifically as a multipurpose snack that can also be used for pointing and counting hexes. So that's a that's a that's a tip brought to you by Battletech of the Day on Instagram. Yes. Although please don't touch the table with those pretzel sticks at my table, but I'm a, I'm a bit of a clean freak perhaps. They insist that they are in fact not oily or greasy and pose no threat to your paper or minis. I sense crumbs. Well, you don't do it as you're taking a bite out of the pretzel rod. 
Oh, I thought it was hanging out of his mouth. It was like in his mouth and he was like pecking the table. <laughs> Leaned yeah. over the boom, table. Boom. Yeah. Let me count these. Boom, boom. His hands, he's holding his mechs in his hands. Okay. And uh, Nathan, I, I think you also pulled out some uh, some fun correlations. If you can hear my, my massive air quotes here. Yes, we found some really clear, inclusive correlations about favorite snack and other facts. We got, we got low p-values over here. We t-tested the heck out of these correlations. <laughs> uh, scientifically unrefutable. <laughs> so first we'll go to boozy people. So boozy people in general... I'm calling you boozy person if you mentioned booze as one of your as your preference for snacks. So people that really like the booze, your favorite weapon was pulse laser. And it makes sense because you can't see you're drunk. Everything's blurry. You need the extra accuracy. It's perfectly on point. People that we classified <laughs> as cheap. Sorry, I should say we. I classified you as cheap. People that said their snack preference were other people's snacks, they prefer ballistic weapons. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because I think ballistic weapons are cheaper in the universe, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're economical. They're economical. There you go. You're economical with your snacks on the table, and you're economical with your weapon choice in the game. People that liked salty snacks liked Aiden Pride the most as a hero. And maybe that is because Jade Falcon is one of the saltiest clans. Hmm. Some connection there. Salty snack preference, salty clan preference. I think that's a good fit. People that liked savory snacks, their favorite weapon was the Gauss rifle. Just like you savor those sniper shots. Line them up, pow. Rolling two sixes. That's the strategy. Gotta savor it when it happens. <laughs> and lastly, people that were sweet because they like sweets are most likely to not have a favorite villain because, oh my god, why would I choose a favorite villain? That's a horrible thing to do. Oh my god, you're so sweet. You're so sweet. What do you think of those scientifically proven observations, Michael? Um, unimpeachable. I'm willing to stake my reputation and bungle tech's reputation on the accuracy and validity of all of these conclusions putting my hand out in a virtual handshake listener shake my hand it's a deal <laughs> it's a deal the hand is shake i'm shaking my hand right now do it with me listener yes it's contractual you can trust us the science is perfect <laughs> and that brings us to an end of this process. Any thoughts, Michael, before we wrap up and move to the next segment? I We have looked at so many responses. There is so much in here. I'm almost glad we don't have more listeners because good gravy, that was a lot of looking at answers. I loved so many of them. I, I really appreciate all of your all of the responses. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to sort of go through and, and learn things, see different things. But, uh, you know, let's, let's not do another one of these, Nathan. Not, not right away. <laughs> let's keep them shorter maybe yeah i agree with this what was fun is that i actually did learn quite a few new things there's lots of niche things that people like that i haven't played with on the table hashtag blazer boy and lots of things there that i've really learned and i'm excited to try and also walking through the lore moments oh that was so fun i just love listening to people explain their favorite things i'm like reliving 
reliving that moment that I've experienced through their eyes. So very cool. So thank you everyone that spent the time. I know that the average, I think, response time for the survey was 53 minutes. That's because you were listening through with us. Oh, good gravy. (laughs) Well, I mean, they were listening to the podcast when they were doing with us lots of people. So that makes sense. Oh, okay. okay, But um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And I am really so stoked that we have scientific proof, irrefutable evidence of Battletech preferences in the Battletech community that we can take to court that we can write a constitution about. This is perfect. It's like our analysis is perfect. It's just amazing. No one will ever do any better. Finally, we have reached this point of knowledge and wisdom. (laughs) Um, It's amazing. And yes, of course. This is our magnum opus. Not just our magnum opus. This is Battletech's magnum opus. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, that's how confident I am in our data in our statistically insignificant data analysis. <laughs> um, yeah, and so remember, I'll be sharing the data online on our OneNote public resource, so you can check that out when you're checking out our game modes and other stuff in case you want to look at the data yourself and pull out some unique observations and perhaps go along the journey with us. That will include our analysis we did, our data cleanup, and how we jumbled everything together so you can look a little bit about a process and perhaps scrutinize our data analysis a little bit. but. Hey, I'm not afraid of you scrutinizing perfection because it's perfect and we never make mistakes at Bungle Tech. So what could you possibly find? Ha ha ha. That's what you come to Bungle Tech Co. for. Perfection. I'm Professor Michael, presenting more of The Sphere We Live In. The Streak SRM system is a miracle of Star League technology, using laser pulses and an integrated fire control system to virtually guarantee each missile fired will hit its target. Even at the peak of Star League technological advancement, however, they were unable to guide more than two missiles at a time. It was not until centuries later in 3058 that Draconis Combine researchers finally unlocked the secret to targeting six SRMs. Now you know about the sphere we live in. Tertiary Objective Battlefield Outcome Report Segment Initiating This is Nathaniel Smithson reporting boots on the ground for INN on Leacuff 4, where I've been invited by the base commander to see how they are able to effectively defend against Blakist strikes. Right now, I'm standing next to the Cyclops, piloted by Commander Christel from a local mercenary company, and it is perched on top of a massive earthwork fortification overlooking the valley to the east. Industrial mechs were working through the night to give this machine every advantage it could get, with elevation and a ring of logs and sandbags around one side, resting the Gauss rifle in its right arm. Now, I'm told a Blakist lance set down on the far side of the valley just before dawn, and Lieutenant Akira is currently patrolling the perimeter in a lighter mech. Once he gets in range, the advanced C3 systems in the mechs will activate, and feed targeting data back to the Cyclops. Oh, the Cyclops is moving, shifting around the ring of sandbags. It looks like they spotted something. 
There! I can see what might be a marauder landing about 500 meters away down the valley. Christelle seems to be adjusting their aim carefully and... A clean hit! The Blakist machine looks to be really struggling with that. And it's retreating! I can see the jump jet's lid as it's falling back into the fungal growth. Wow! I don't think I've seen a shot like that in my years of reporting. Now, I'm going to relocate back to the bunker complex, just in the unlikely event the fighting reaches us here. This has been Nathaniel Smithson for INN, reporting from Laika 4. So, what happened? A Cyclops landed an easy shot thanks to stacking the odds in its favor. Well, how did it happen? This was an attack-defend scenario, and before the match started, defenders were allowed to arrange some terrain tiles, which they used to get an elevated and covered position with clear sight lines over the approach and good cover for the Cyclops. Using the level 1 cover in front of it, the Cyclops began bracing its right arm. This gave it a minus two on attacks with the Gauss rifle. Then, it made use of its C3 master hooked up to an Owens that was racing around the front line. As soon as the Marauder landed in range, the Cyclops took a shot with the Gauss rifle. It was an easy hit, and between the range and the cover, there was no real way to return fire effectively. This is a great example of stacking rules together to make a really hard shot much easier. Without stacking the rules in this way, the target number for the shot would have been 11. But with the rules stacking in this manner, it was 5. What a difference. 5 for the gunnery of the Cyclops, 0 for its range, minus 2 for the brace shot, and plus 2 for the Marauder's movement. That's a target number of 5 on an opponent more than 17 hexes away. Wowza. I'm Professor Michael, presenting more of The Sphere We Live In. Originally a cost-saving measure compared to reactivating their mothballed warships, each of the three commissioned Dante-class frigates is estimated to have cost Comstar forces about 10 billion sea bills, enough to purchase 2,000 Wolverine medium mechs straight from Callan Industries. Now you know about the sphere we live in. Secondary Objective Rule Check Discovery Segment Initiating Welcome back, everybody, to our Rule Check Discovery segment. And today we have a very special one. Because it's not necessarily a mistake I've been making, although it's a mistake I would have been making, but it's a very common situation we've encountered recently that we have deemed the Omega Bungle. Because we think probably about 9 out of 10 of very experienced players have been making this mistake. Michael. At a high level, what is the mistake? Oh gosh, I wasn't prepared for this. I thought you were going to explain it to me. It's something to do with case. Yes, it's something to do with case. Okay, well first, let's explain a little bit of the background of how I discovered this bungle. 
Long story short, I was trying to redesign the process flow in the Battle Mech manual to be a little bit smaller and a little bit easier to navigate as someone who doesn't want to necessarily spin around a flowchart. Something that has a more natural progression from beginning and end, visually. In the process of doing this redesign, I consulted with quite a few people. I'm just going to drop their names here really quick, because we don't necessarily know if the new process flowchart's going to go anywhere, but these people all offered feedback and it was really helpful. So, obviously, present company, Michael, was very helpful with it. We had Saul Roth, Jay Hansa, Seth from the Mercenary Star Podcast, Mishra, Nokarian Schmidt, Chandler Reller from Armor Up, Shrapnel from Battletopia Stories, Warning Puzzle, Odysseus, and Tumult and Travail. So thank you so much. We ended up developing a really clean-looking, easy-to-follow-and-understand process flow. But in the process of designing this, we realized something unique, and that is that when you have an ammo explosion going inside your body, <laughs> maybe not your personal body. <laughs> yeah, if, if, you're, if the ammo explosion goes inside of your body, the game ends. <laughs> the game ends, exactly. So first, there's a separation between your mech on the table and your body sitting beside it. So if the ammo explosion of your mech somehow blows off your arm at the table, call 911. <laughs> let's just leave it at that, okay? That's the best advice I can give you. But let's say you have a mech, and your mech limb gets blown off. It doesn't have case in it. In this situation, if you have ammo or an explosive component in the arm, like a Gauss rifle, you need to roll to see if there's a potential ammo explosion, okay? What's been happening is most people out there have been resolving the residual damage first before resolving the ammo explosion damage. And what's very interesting, because this is very common sense, you think just to resolve the damage coming in. But no, you actually don't. As soon as the arm comes off, imagine there's a PPC blowing it up. Three damage takes out the arm. You've seven damage coming in. You don't put that seven damage in. You pause, see if there's an ammo explosion, resolve that ammo explosion, and then after resolving the ammo explosion or component explosion, you then do the remaining seven damage. And this means then certain situations, specific to inner sphere mechs, when you have an ammo explosion in your arm, once the case prevents that torso damage from going any further, you're still going to have your residual seven damage poke through at the end. And that could be game changing in certain situations. Michael, does it make sense now? I mean, your your explanation makes sense, I guess. I don't think the rule makes sense. I don't I don't really like the way this rule works. It makes the resolution a lot more fiddly and annoying. It's not even like it's that more that much more complicated. It's just fiddly that you have to suddenly stop what you're doing, resolve a critical hit, and then maybe a bunch more damage, and then come back and remember where you were in the first set of damage. And I don't feel like this makes a big difference. So I guess if it's just the how how much damage flows through, that's not really a big deal. Cause, you know, maybe it'll be like you say, like it'll it'll be a few damage points this way or that way. Maybe you score an extra critical hit that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But you're saying that many people play it that when the case goes off, the damage from the initial attack doesn't propagate either. That's how most people would play it. 
Exactly. And that's because the damage coming in, they resolve it first. So the seven damage from that PPC we were talking about, they put that into the internal torso first, and then they put the ammo explosion damage in. And the ammo explosion damage would take the rest of the internal torso out and then stop any more damage from coming in. Because if you imagine a situation in which your center torso has already been damaged, let's say you're already on internal and center torsos, you have an ammo explosion in your arm, it goes through, your center torso is going to take no damage by the common way that people are resolving. Once again, when they resolve focusing on finishing that attack. But the actual process involving the interruption would mean that residual damage would go through. So if your center torso in this situation was already internals, it's going to route that damage through, which could easily result in a kill in certain situations. Okay, but it, it sounds like either way, you're saying the seven damage from the PPC still hits your internal torso, right? Or your center torso, right? The way that people are playing it, the internal damage wouldn't hit their center torso. Okay, guys, Michael and I had to take a little pause here so I could actually write down an example to explain <laughs> how this madness actually works. I tried to explain it on the fly with my examples, and as you know, that can be a bit challenging for everybody. Remember, bunglers, this is an interactive segment, so remember to fetch your worksheets of a locus and follow along as Nathan explains what this bungle is. Yes, and actually don't grab a locust record sheet because the damage is not going to be realistic at all. It's, just, <laughs> it's an imaginary scenario. Okay, so I'm going to explain how the application of this rule changes the overall damage. First, we're going to explain how most people play it. So imagine Michael's piloting his locust. He's running around in a civilian settlement using his machine guns, just peppering civilians. He is a horrible person in this scenario. He's killed millions, billions, and he's almost out of machine gun ammo. He only has five ammo remaining in his arm, okay? A honorable clanner says, hey, killing civilians is bad. I'm gonna come stop you. Sends a warhawk to take out the locusts because killing civilians is serious business. The warhawk comes into battle, shoots the locust, despite it being so fast and maneuverable, you can't beat Clan Precision ER PPCs. The PPC blows off the locust arm. The locust arm was already on five internals remaining. The ER PPC has 15 total damage coming in. Okay? It blows off the arm. It is 10 more damage coming in. This is where the process differentiates for most people. What most people would do is they take that 10 damage from the ER PPC and immediately move it inwards. Let's imagine that the locust has 12 internals remaining on that slot. The 10 damage goes in resolve first, okay? So now the locust has two internals remaining. Then the player would roll for a component explosion. The component explosion triggers. He only has five ammo remaining from the machine gun, remember? So that's five damage. Because there's only two damage remaining, though, he takes two and the case stops the remaining three. That's how most people apply this process. And my locust, with its mere one point in its center torso, escapes mostly unscathed. Yes, the locust runs off into the distance, continuing its pirating life, laughing as it uses <laughs> its feet to stomp some remaining civilians. What a monster. But if you were playing it correctly, what would happen instead is... Everything's the same. The arm's been blown off. 
Now we have 10 damage from the ERPPC, but before resolving that damage, we check to see if there's a component explosion. There is. So now you have 5 damage coming in from the component explosion. That goes internal. Remember, there was 12 remaining on the right torso internal that we talked about before. So that 5 damage for the machine gun goes in there, boom, 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 7 damage remaining in that internal torso. You then apply the remaining of the PPC damage, 10, which is 7 for the remaining of the internal torso, and then 3 would move the center. This would even be more dramatic in my example if I said there was 12 machine gun ammo, <laughs> which would probably make more sense. I should have written this down in the example. Let's start all over. Just kidding. <laughs> this is something that only impacts inner sphere mechs, and it makes sense why people are doing it because they're thinking, I resolve the remaining damage in my attack before moving on. But no, as soon as the arm breaks, if there's a component in there that can cause an explosion, you stop, you don't resolve the remaining damage until you apply this stuff and do your next step. I apologize, this has been very challenging, but it is quite a small technical change that can make a difference. It's a niche thing, and once again, only really happens specifically in situations where you don't have case in the arms, because case in the arms would prevent this damage spillover from happening. So it's only specific inner sphere mechs, but you know, a really common example of this is something like the Highlander, because no case in the arms and it's a Gauss rifle. And so if that pops off, and I think that's going to be quite a common occurrence with the arm getting blown off, that damage could go inwards. And you could change a little bit of the damage coming through based on certain situations. So it is definitely an added vulnerability. And to be honest, this is how the rules are documented. But this may not even be an intentional behavior because it seems to add almost an unintuitive layer of complexity to the game it seems inconsistent with how the rest of the game plays out slightly. So who knows if this is intentional, but that's the way it is. Dazzle your friends at the table next time you're playing and they're like, oh, my five rounds of machine gun ammo explode and be like, wait, make sure you resolve that in the correct order. Write down the remaining PPC damage. Now let's start rolling for critical hits to see whether it explodes. Slow the game down further. Annoy your friends. Annoy your friends. And if they say, oh no, it doesn't make a difference, point at them and say, you're a war criminal. You'd kill civilians. Get mad at each other. And leave it at that. Walk away from the table. Storm out of the game night. Yes, that is the right way to do it. Okay, <laughs> you're either right or you're a war criminal. I think you're starting to give the wrong impression about Bungle Tech. Bungle Tech code does not endorse war crimes. These are merely examples. No one at Bungle Tech Inc. would ever commit any war crimes. Exactly. We do not endorse war crimes. And that's why we follow the rules as written. I'm Professor Michael, presenting more of the sphere we live in. The MAN Portable Plasma Rifle is an infantry support weapon designed for Capellan Confederation armed forces to allow infantry to combat modern armor on the battlefield. By vaporizing a 1.5 kilogram block of plastic feedstock into laser-excited plasma and accelerating it towards a target, 
this weapon is capable of inflicting over half the damage of an Exostar small laser. Now you know about the sphere we live in. Tertiary Objective Stories of the Inner Sphere Segment Initiating Patterson Flats, Warren, Capellan March, Federated Sons, 8th of December, 3073. Here we are, Grange said as they rounded a final bend. Kevin didn't think here looked particularly inviting. Set against a large hill, the Feral Creep building looked more stable than anything in the wrecked town they just passed through. But not much. Its pockmarked walls blended smoothly into the natural rock, time and dust coloring them the same red as the surrounding desert. A pile of twigs that might have been a bird's nest poked from the eaves, and boards covered the windows and single door, bleached by the sun until they resembled old bones. Some had split or fallen off, revealing the shadowy depths within. Sorry, Sarge, I didn't hear you properly, Kevin said. I thought you said we were going to get a mech, not a wreck. That's what the trek was supposedly about. One battle mech. A full battalion of them waited back at the garrison, most in good working order. Kevin didn't think heading off into the godforsaken desert to get just one more was worth the trouble. Yet, here he was, bouncing along the remains of this road in a dirty old jeep, with a load of high explosives in the back. That made him nervous, especially considering the quality of Grange's driving. He hadn't questioned the old sergeant when they loaded the cases up under the quartermaster's watchful eye just before sunrise. Grange wasn't the kind of man who invited questions. You either did what he told you to, or you did what he told you to do with some bruises and an extra punishment assignment. Even as old as he was, Grange packed a mean right hook. Barrick's rumor said he'd perfected it during the reunification war. Shut your trap, son. The old sergeant growled. It was the longest sentence he'd spoken since they had left the base. Although his long-winded war stories were the stuff of legend, today the old man had uncharacteristically hidden his rugged face behind a wraparound visor and answered any inquiries with a disinterested grunt. After a while, Kevin gave up and entertained himself by counting the potholes Grange hit, giving double points for the ones the old man could have avoided if he'd bothered to turn the wheel. It was not an insignificant number. They bumped over a set of tracks that led into a deadfall and pulled up to the building. When Grain shut the jeep down, its engine pinged a couple of times and the radiator hissed in relief. The early morning heat was just beginning to get uncomfortable. It sucked Kevin's energy away and he'd been fighting hard not to nod off for the past few miles. Grange leaned on the steering wheel, sucking in a huge breath and expelled it through puffed cheeks. He looked the way Kevin usually felt after one of the sergeant's own workouts. Maybe the heat was getting to him, too. So, what's this place? Kevin asked. A graveyard, 
Grange said. A what? Not in the literal sense, Grange said with a wry smile. He climbed out and walked to the back of the jeep where he removed a pry bar from the kit box. More in the sense it's a place you put something you want to forget. Something you want to bury and hope it stays buried. Sounds promising, Kevin said. To him, the whole world of Warren was a place where things went to be buried and forgotten, like his career. But that's what happened when you graduated in the bottom third of a class from a second-rate academy. You don't get to go to the Brigade of Guards or the Avalon Hussars. You get to go to the Capellan March Militia and guard the Warren Polymorphous Defense Zone in the backwater of the Federated Sons. Kevin hated this world. Hated being stuck here. War with the Capellans, the Blakis, and now the Torians had distracted the powers that be. And all his applications for transfer, all the recommendations from superior officers had been swept under the rug. New recruits from respected universities replenished the ranks, while the militia stayed put. Only an act of God was going to get him recognized, give him a chance to get off this rock and into a real unit. The people he vented his frustrations to were no help either. Most told him this assignment was his own fault. He could have studied harder, not spent so much time goofing off or wrapped around the girl of the moment. He could have applied to a real academy, like Warriors Hall, or maybe even Albion. None of that seemed so important back then. But five years as Mech Warrior Corporal Langstorm, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Company, Warren Capellan March Militia, reporting to Sergeant Major Grange, had changed his mind. Kevin was savvy enough to hide his resentment from the people he served with. He was smarter than this outfit full of inbred outbackers and retirees. Better than them. Few of them knew it, but Grange did. He treated Kevin differently than the rest of his charges. Showed him a little more respect. Maybe the old man recognized his wasted potential and tried to make up for it in his own small way. Or maybe... Kevin really did remind him of his long-dead son, as one old hand had suggested. Grange took a few more items from the kit box, including a pair of tiny flashlights and a smaller pry bar, which he gave to Kevin. Got a lot of work ahead. Let's get started before this damned sun gets too hot. Well, I hope you packed lunch. Kevin hefted his pry bar, walking alongside Grange to the boarded door. Rations, Grange replied, digging his bar into the old wood. Of course. The old man lived on the damn things. They were probably the only thing he'd eaten for the past 50 years. The last board slid off its nails with a dry squeak. Grange tossed it aside and studied the battered door. The outline of an old faded logo was barely visible, its colors bleached away by the desert sun long ago. Dulled graffiti and even a few bullet holes added to its character. This used to be a gold mine back in the Star League days, the old sergeant said. Then, the vein played out sometime in the 29th century, and the company shut her down and abandoned the place. A lot of people were put out of work. The town faded away not much later. People pretty much forgot about it. 
except for the occasional kids looking for a hangout. A local gang staked it out as their personal turf about 40 years ago, ran their own miniature crime wave out of here until the law had enough and burned them out. I used to come here when I was a kid, hoping to find traces of gold for myself, but there's nothing to be had, nothing but dust and memories. He smacked his hands together, removing the dust. Nobody comes here now. Few people even remember it exists. And that suits me just fine. Sand had frozen the lock, so they broke down the door with a makeshift battering ram. It collapsed off its ancient hinges after just two heaves. They entered a dingy antechamber that may once have been a reception area. Grange lit his small flashlight and led the way through a complex that extended into the mountain. Graffiti covered almost every surface, broken occasionally by scorch marks in the odd bullet hole. Debris, some of it identifiable as office equipment, crunched underfoot. Several walls had collapsed, and the ceiling buckled alarmingly in some places. Still, the place had a sense of dignified history. Fortunes had been won here. Grange led Kevin to a room set far back from the entrance where the sun didn't reach. Stale air pressed in. His tiny flashlight felt woefully inadequate. On one wall stood a door more modern than the rest of the complex. Solid-looking, like a vault door, with large hinges and a long metal handle. A security keypad glowed red on the wall beside it. Grange grunted in satisfaction. Generator's still running. The keypad looked very out of place amid this seemingly worthless devastation. It piqued Kevin's curiosity. That's some heavy security, Sarge. I thought you said no one came here anymore. Nobody I know about doesn't mean I know everything. Last thing I want is someone just stumbling in here. Grange blew on the numbers. Dust swirled, and Kevin covered his nose. You remember the combination? He asked, only half-jokingly. The old man grunted again. <clears throat> Some things you don't forget, even if you try. He pressed a few buttons. The sequence meant nothing to Kevin, but the pad beeped, changing from red to green. A dull clunk sounded from within the wall. Grange turned the long handle and dragged the door open to reveal a deep, black cave. It grated loudly as it moved, the noise echoing back from inside. Cool, dry air fluttered around them. As it worked into Kevin's lungs, he found he didn't really want to explore the depths it came from. Grange groped along the wall until he found a power switch. When he flipped it, a series of dim sodium lights flared, pushing back the endless dark. They were in a cavern, a vast man-made edifice hewn from the heart rock of the mountain. The decrepit series of rails they'd crossed outside continued here, emerging from under the deadfall and disappearing into the depths. This was unmistakably the old mine's main entrance. Signs of ancient habitation were present in the form of fire-blackened barrels ringed by crates and large rocks. The remains of makeshift campsites, old food and beverage containers littered the floor, 
and a pyramid-shaped can of feral beer sat on the end of a rail cart as if someone had just placed it there. The air was still and oppressive. The cave, very empty. Almost empty. Off to one side, something lurked in the shadows where the pools of light didn't seem to reach. It drew Kevin's attention with a sudden spike of adrenaline. He squinted, but couldn't make out what it was, save that it was huge. It remained little more than a shadow, black against the charcoal of the walls. Grange strode straight toward the object, stepping carefully through the detritus. Kevin followed hesitantly. It was cold here in the bowels of the earth, colder than he would expect for a desert summer. The slightest footfall echoed in the dark, and he trod softly where he could. He'd heard the term, silent as the grave before, but only now understood its meaning. It was a revelation he could have lived without. At the set of rails, he stopped. There'd been a sound, but it was gone now. He tried to think, but couldn't quite recall what it had been. A whisper? He must have imagined it. But Grange had also stopped, staring intently at the hulking shadow. His face, unreadable. Unease clenched his stomach. The barracks suddenly seemed a long way off. As they drew near, Kevin saw that Grange hadn't been joshing him. The hulking form was a mech. He expected the dim light would reveal a loader mech or even an old mining mech, but never this. It was a marauder. Not one of the new style chassis, but one of the classic GM Mad series. It looked pristine. That is what he could see if it did. Its paint was a flat black that melted into the shadows. No matter what angle he viewed it from, Kevin couldn't quite see it clearly, as if the machine conspired to keep some part of itself hidden. The more he did see, the more his unknees nodded him. The mech was wrong. Its angles were too smooth, its proportions not quite right. It was too sleek, yet its bulk terribly imposing. Once, when he was a kid, Kevin's father had taken him to a zoo, where some kind of big alien cat was kept in a pit. Looking down at it, he felt safe, looking out over the rail to point, until that cat had looked back at him, and he knew that if he fell in the pit, he would definitely not be safe. He never forgot the way he felt when those yellow eyes met his, never forgot what would happen if the old rail snapped. It was the way he felt now looking at this mech, only there was no rail here. Grange walked up and put a hand gently on one clawed foot, but withdrew it quickly. He stepped back and looked up at the darkened cockpit. Hello, you bastard, he said softly. He dropped his gaze to the floor and shook his head. Grange, something's... Kevin could not articulate his question. Not right. The old man snorted. There's a lot of things not right with this thing. He put a vile inflection on the word, describing it qualities no machine should ever have. 
How did... Kevin began, but that wasn't the right question. Its answer was insufficient. Why is it down here? Because it belongs in a hole. Grange walked back into a welcoming pool of light. I stuck it down here after the War of 39. Back then, I'd hoped I'd seen the last of it. Guess you can't bury every secret. Talking pushed back the strange oppressiveness, and Kevin began to shake off his unease. He had a great many questions, each one crying for an answer, each answer undoubtedly leading to another question. There was a story behind this mech, no doubt, but here, in this place, Kevin questioned whether it was a story he wanted to hear. The marauder leered at him, daring him to come closer, to come into the pit. It taunted him with its wrongness. It was nothing he could put his finger on. The reverse knee joint of the legs, the torso rotation ring, the particle projection cannon's housings, all looked somehow off. As if this weren't a genuine marauder, but a copy made by someone who had seen one once and then recreated it from memory. That thought formed his next question. Where did it come from? Grain shrugged. Who knows? It has no serial number and hasn't been removed. It's just not there. Kevin frowned. Every machine in the inner sphere, from toasters to dropships, had a serial number. Grange upturned a bucket, sat on it, and lit a cigarette. He sat and smoked, signs that heralded one of his trademark stories. Kevin had been subjected to more than one of these during his time with the unit. Nothing short of an invasion could stop the old man once he got going. Resigned, he took a seat on the dilapidated rail cart. He groaned a little, but held. He ran over the routine in his mind. Smile, nod in the right places, pretend to be interested, had a prompt or two when the old man expected it. He felt the first yawn building in the back of his throat. It could have been made anywhere, Grange said. Cathill, Quentin, Taurus, maybe even somewhere in the deep periphery. They never did find all the Maris hidden bases, you know? He took a long drag, expelled the cloud of smoke toward the mech. One thing I do know is that it's very old. How can you tell? You get a feel for these sorts of things. This mech has history. Real history or spooky, dark, cave history? Grange threw him a sharp look, and Kevin raised a hand apologetically. That comment had likely earned him some long, lonely patrol duty, but it was worth it. Was right after the Fourth War, Grange said. I was with the Capellan Dragoons back then. We were headed back to Warren after a pirate hunting stint along the Torian border. We had a lot of trouble in that area during the war, especially from Tortuga. The higher-ups eventually sent the 9th F-C to pay a visit to Lady Death, but until then, it was pretty busy. We stopped to recharge in an uninhabited system one jump out from Malagrotta. Nothing there, but some useless gas giants in an asteroid belt. But we figured since we had a few days, we'd do some exploring. He held up a finger and gave a knowing wink. 
Never know when you'll stumble on one of those lost Star League depots. Kevin couldn't help grinning. On one of the bigger asteroids. We found that. Grange jerked a disdainful thumb at the marauder. Was sheer dumb luck. We passed that rock inbound and missed it. But on the way out, there it was. Plain as can be. Standing out there in the dark. Lord of all the nothing it could want. At the time, we thought it was a blessing. A brand new marauder and nobody to dispute our salvage rights. So, we loaded it onto our union and took off. Kevin found himself falling into the tale. Grange was a natural storyteller. He'd away with words, inflection, and body language that fixated an audience. The old man might have been saving it all up, rehearsing in his head during the drive out here. We should have known right then. It had no markings. No ID number. No unit insignia. Nothing. God only knows who left it there. Or why. No. I know why. His eyes unfocused, and he bowed his head for a moment, before continuing. And it was so clean, sitting on an asteroid for Kerensky knows how long, and not a speck of dust. A couple of the more religious guys wanted to leave it there, said it must be a shrine to some long-forgotten warrior or something, and it would be sacrilegious to take it. Seems silly at the time, but given what followed... Grange reached for a new cigarette. Kevin's lingering unease pointed out how the old man always took care to keep the marauder in sight, never completely turning his back on it. He spared it a glance. The hunched form seemed to be leaning forward, eager to hear its own story. I guess the first problem we had was during the jump into Egliana. I don't think anyone on that ship will forget that jump, though we'd all like to, and most don't talk about it. Something happened then, in that half second of nothing, when you don't exist. I never can recall fully what it was. I just know. It left me more scared than I've ever been. I'm not talking clanner bearing down on you with all guns blazing scared. No, sir. I mean, the shit your pants and curl into a whimpering little ball kind of terror you only get when you're a little kid. And you're sure... The boogeyman standing right next to your bed. Kevin raised an eyebrow. The barracks rumor was that the grizzled old sergeant had had his fear surgically removed. Sometimes I think I remember what it was. In that second, right after you wake up from a nightmare. Right before you forget it. But then, I do forget. And I can go on living. Anyways, I remember coming to... Squeezed between my bunk and the deck, with no desire to get out. Everyone on the ship was affected, some more than others. I was one of the lucky ones, one of those able to forget. Tommy? Reg Thompson. Well, he wasn't so lucky. Old Tommy, he was what you might call sensitive. Seemed to know stuff instinctively. That was downright creepy in itself. But what happened to him? Still chills my blood like nothing else. Right after the jump, Tommy started to scream. It was a mad sound. Terrible, like the devil was after him. Hell, maybe he was. Beaten between the screams, 
all we could get out of him was gibberish. Kept going on about how they weren't dead, just sleeping, and we were opening the door for them to come back. And he made this awful sound, this chanting, over and over again, like a prayer. Doc said it was jump psychosis. Said Tommy's mind had forgotten reality and was fixating on the books he'd been reading. Jump psychosis can do that to a man, Kevin said. But not all at once, kid. It builds up over time. Tommy had no signs. It was just like a dam burst and washed his mind away. Doc ended up sedating him, but it did no good. Tommy got out and ran, and we had to scour the whole ship for him. You have any idea what it's like having to search an invader and three docked unions for something as small as one man? We finally caught up with him on the jump ship. Somehow, he'd managed to slip through the docking collar and into the jump core. That set the ship's captain on edge. Something fierce. Kept us there another two weeks, while he looked for sabotage. Only Tommy wasn't trying to kill us. He was just passing through. It was me and two others that finally caught up with him in a maintenance airlock. I'll never forget the look in his eyes as he shut that door. He was completely lucid. Knew exactly what he was doing when he opened that outer hatch and spaced himself. I know it's cliched, but that's exactly what he did. And you blame this. Kevin gestured toward the shadow. All I know is things like that never happened before it came along. And nothing's happened since I stuck it down here. And you need to be thankful. His piercing blue eyes flashed, and Kevin bowed his head. Questioning the sergeant was always bound to get you some hurt free of charge, and he'd already earned enough today. Thompson wasn't the last one it got to. There was a tech, I forgot his name, Reynard or Rexpin or something. But he was the bad attitude kind of guy. Not mean, but miserable. The kind who can find the cow shit in any spring meadow and drag it out and insist you look at it. Nobody liked him, and I still can't say I miss him. But some things you just don't wish on anyone. Grange lit his third cigarette. Kevin shifted uncomfortably, wondering how much more there was to this story. Outside that desert sun was growing hotter and they still had to work in it. Anyway, this guy Rexman, one day he was changing its coolant, bitching up a storm as usual. When he slips on some spill, he probably made himself. He ends up covered in coolant with people laughing at him, and of course, blames the mech for all his troubles and starts yelling and using all kinds of colorful words against it. Range switched to his lecture voice, now you know a gentleman should never call a lady names. Well, that goes doubly so for a bitch. In the middle of his tirade, the left PPC discharged, vaporized him from the waist up, and left us to clean up the rest. I ain't never heard before or since of a PPC firing when a mech is powered down. It's impossible, Kevin said. The capacitors bleed down when the fusion cores in standby. Any leftover charge would dissipate harmlessly. It takes a long time to charge a PPC after startup. If he was following protocol, that mech should have been inert, especially if he was changing coolant. 
Well, thanks for the lecture, kid. I didn't know all that, Grange said. Look, I'm just telling it like it happened. Do you want to hear this or not? The honest answer was no, but the tone that suggested latrine duty was creeping into Grange's voice, so Kevin simply nodded and sat back. Sorry. The sergeant collected his thoughts, staring off into the abyssal hole at the cave's far end. Then, there was Zahi. Zaini Zahi, we used to call him. Arabic descent. Guy had a lot of strange ways. Used to get picked on a lot, but he never let it get to him. Had this habit of stopping to pray at inopportune times, like in the middle of a briefing. Pulled a lot of KP duty because of Allah, Zahi did. Never pulled that shit in combat, though, like some have. He'd enough good sense not to do that. Whatever craziness he got up to, Zai left it off the field. One day, we were out on maneuvers and Zai drew the short straw. It had been a couple months since we'd buried Rex, and nothing else had happened. Zai never had any qualms about piloting the Marauder. He always said, Allah rode in the jump seat, and nothing could harm him. Grange spat. Guess Allah called him sick that day. Zai ended up separated from his lance. The terrain was all hills and valleys, so it was a common occurrence. You could usually find your way back easily enough. Something went wrong for Zai that day. Something worse than a bad compass. We could hear him, but no one could locate him anywhere. He kept saying his sensors were offline and he couldn't see the sun, which was damned odd since it was a clear day. Old Colonel Johnstad got pissed, yelling that this was the reason we need to do these maneuvers and what would happen if there was a Lao raid. So he mobilized the whole battalion to go out and find old Zany. Standard sweep, search, and rescue. Leave no stone unturned, as it were. Zahi's transmission kept growing fainter, fuzzier, like he was getting farther away. The colonel told him to park it and activate his transponder, even told him to get out and shoot up a flare. By now, it was getting dark, and even the PBIs were having no luck finding his trail. Grange said nothing for a while, only rubbed the scalp under his thinning white hair. It looked somehow older than he had when he began this tale. Kevin craned his neck to see the marauder where it crouched, still hunched, forward, still listening. Anyway, Grange said at last, Nightfall came, and still no Zahi. The colonel ordered a satellite sweep of the area, but there was too much heavy metal in the hills to see anything useful. Then, around midnight, Zahi began to scream. Nothing coherent, just a bunch of gibbering in Arabic. HQ looked like someone had dropped a panic bomb on it. They thought he'd run across some pirates that had been hitting worlds in the PDZ. The colonel was yelling at him to calm down and report, but Zahi wouldn't respond to him. Wouldn't or couldn't. Then, he stopped yelling. And I wish to God he hadn't. He let out this one long moan. And I tell you, kid, it wasn't anything I'd ever want you to hear. I wake up covered in sweat sometimes, and I may not remember whatever dream caused it, but I remember that moan was a part of it. It's always a part of it. 
like some kind of sick special effect. It was as if Zahi saw the devil coming for him and was watching as Allah gave him away. Worst part is, right before the line cut out, I know I heard that same chanting Tommy made, and it was coming from more than one mouth. Zahi wasn't with the unit back then. He never knew Thompson. A shudder wove down Kevin's body. Grange was getting to him, here alone in the dark. The old man was working him up, but he sensed there was more to it. Grange had to tell this story, had to let it out like some twisted catharsis. He'd kept it bottled up for years, all these nights of cold sweats and horrified moans. Kevin was just a handy sounding board. Therapy for an old man's inner demons. Just what he needed. We found the mech about an hour later, standing right out in the open in a valley that had been swept three times. Cockpit was sealed, and when the PBIs finally climbed up and popped it, his voice trailed off. Moisture had gathered at the corners of his eyes. Zai was gone. Gone, Kevin said. Gone how? Just gone. We never found a trace of him. The mech was in perfect order, all systems functional. The neural helmet had even been neatly tucked back on its shelf, and the cockpit safety latches had been sealed from the inside, same as you do when you're expecting hostile infantry. That's impossible, Kevin found himself saying again. Son, haven't you been listening? This thing shits the impossible. There was a long silence. Grange stared at the ground between his feet. Kevin stared at anything but the looming shadow in the corner. So, Kevin said, is that when you put it down here? Not just yet. We kept it for a few more years, and there were other events though none so profound as Zai's. The colonel kept trying to reassign the thing, but no one wanted it. The legend of a curse had begun. Spent more time sitting in the hangar than anything else. Even the dispossessed wouldn't take it. Kevin understood what the word dispossessed meant, but the true horror of it was lost on him, as he supposed it was on most of his generation. During the devastation of the succession wars, Battle mechs became a rare commodity owned by and passed down through mech warrior families. The loss of the family mech meant dispossession and the loss of everything. No more noble title, no more land grant, no more food on the table for a suddenly destitute family. Today, mechs were in mass production again, and almost all were property of the state. Dispossession simply meant you were waiting for the next shipment from the quartermaster, instead of living as a desperate grunt striving to capture a new mech to revive your family's honor. For his part, Kevin was very glad his mech was the property of the Federated Sons. Eventually, Grange said, the colonel ended up taking it for his own ride. He barked a laugh. <laughs> that lasted all of one day. He took it out of maneuvers, not to the same place Zahi went, mind you, but off on a different route. Still, he came back two hours late, had us all worried and ready to start the search party all over again. 
Me and old Jim Mullins were the first to greet him when he dropped down out of the cockpit, pale, looking more tired than I'd ever seen him. Get rid of it, he said to us. No explanation, just, I don't care where, I don't care how, just do it. I've never known someone without fear in my life, but the colonel was as close to it as one can get. Seeing him like that was damn near the end of me. I couldn't let the thing that had done that to him get away with it. So I did what he asked. I found the deepest, darkest hole on this world and dropped it in. Took me and Jim three days to haul it out here, fit that door we came through, and below the main entrance. The girl didn't want to know about it, and we both swore to never tell a soul. Jim's dead now, so he kept his oath. Unlike me. Grange looked around the cavern, taking in the dim lighting, the rusting rails, the cracked walls. I never wanted to see this place again. Thirty-five years just doesn't seem like long enough. So... Why bring it back? Kevin asked. We're not hurting for mechs. You left it here through the clan invasion, the civil war. What makes you think we need it now? The old sergeant sighed. When he spoke again, his voice had turned somber, subdued. Because this jihad is a different kind of war. This looks like it could be the one. The war. The word isn't going to stop until the entire sphere is dead or singing praises to Blake. And they've got the means to do it. And if this is Armageddon, then I want the devil on my side. You hear that? He yelled to the marauder. We're going to war, you bastard! His voice echoed long and loud into the depths of the abyss. Kevin thought the devil just might be able to hear. So... That's it, then? He asked. The word comes knocking and you're just going to toss out decades of superstition and drive it out of here. Nope. Grange smiled and pointed a stubby finger. You are. Kevin sat in silence for a moment. At first, he thought he'd misheard the old man or that he was joking. But Grange never joked. Possibly didn't remember how. Me? He managed. You, Grange said. He looked hard at Kevin, a mix of concern and compassion in his eyes. I didn't drag you down here just because I needed a warm body. I brought you because I need someone I can trust. There are damn few of those on this world, especially ones who can also pilot a mech. Kevin felt heartened. The largest mech he had ever piloted was the old chameleon he'd learned on back in his academy days. He'd never been sure if he could handle anything larger. Never had the chance to try. Grange's faith was like a cool breeze. All right. He turned toward the shadow, still hunching forward, still lurking in its pit, inviting him to come in and play. In a minute. Grange nodded. Whenever you're ready. They sat in silence, Kevin running through things in his head. The old man's story was crap, of course, but there were probably a few grains of truth in it. Maybe some poor tech had gotten killed working on it, that sort of thing happened. Maybe their colonel did tell him to get rid of it for whatever reason, 
It had to get down here somehow. But that bit about Zahi and his disappearing act, he was sure that part was one of the sergeant's grand embellishments. Then, another thought occurred to him, an even more heartening one. Under the ancient laws of salvage, this mech would belong to him. Well, him and Grange. But somehow he didn't think the old man would contest his ownership. With a mech of his own, especially a marauder, he could command higher pay, better assignments, maybe even a little more prestige and a chance at promotion. Spooky backstory or not, those were some pretty significant balancers toward the positive. They were enough. A chain ladder hung from the mech's chin. Grange steadied the bottom, and Kevin started up the rungs. The old man had worked him up something fierce with his crazy story and the effects were lingering. But the discipline, ingrained by his mech warrior training, overrode any squeamish impulses. His mind fell into routine. This was a battle mech, and he was a mech warrior. That was all there was. He got about halfway up when he glanced at the cockpit and... What is it? Grange asked. I... Kevin tried to speak, but his throat closed. He swallowed hard. Thought I saw something. Yeah, maybe. The worn voice was mellow, soothing, understanding. It's just your imagination, son. There's nothing up there. Kevin wanted to believe him. Believe that what he thought he had seen was just a reflection possibly of Grange moving around below, but it hadn't looked much like a reflection. It had looked an awful lot like someone was in the cockpit, someone who had been looking out at him and leaned back out of sight when Kevin's face tilted up. Grange was directly below him, out of view of the cockpit. Go on, son. His bombs were slick on the rungs, and he thought how absurd it would be to lose his grip and fall. Right now, didn't sound so absurd. He wiped his hands on his shirt and took a better grip. The missing weight under his left arm where his sidearm usually sat pulled him down. He hadn't thought he'd need a gun on a trip into the desert. There was a regret for the record books. He put his hand on the next rung and slowly resumed climbing. His legs felt like someone had attached lead weights to them and dragging each up to the next step, drained him. He kept his gaze fixed, unblinking on the cockpit rim, convinced he would see that movement again. And he knew when he did, he'd fall, and Grange had damn well better be up to catching him. There were four rungs left until he reached the top of the ladder and would have to switch to handholds on the mech's head. Three and his sweaty palms slipped a little on the chain. Two, and a clinking sound from the ladder below caused his bowels to clench. One, and the blood began to drain from his head. In a moment, he was going to come up over the rim of the mech's jutting chin and peer directly into the cockpit. What would he see there? Would it be nothing, like all logic said it should be? Or would it be more than nothing? Would he find someone there staring back at him, perhaps long lost Zahi come to find someone to take his place in limbo? Of course not. 
This was ridiculous. Nothing was up there. His nerves were on edge from the combination of Granger's story and the atmosphere of the setting he had chosen to tell it in. Kevin gritted his teeth, grabbed a handhold on the side of the head, and pulled himself up. An instant of doubt hammered at the back of his mind, and for a second he saw, actually saw, a shape in the cockpit seat. Then, a spike of adrenaline caused his pupils to dilate, taking in more light, and he saw only an empty command chair on the other side of the glass just as he knew he would. He leaned his face against the cockpit glass, letting its coolness absorb some of the fear. His legs shook dangerously on the last chain rung, and he waited for them to steady before attempting to open the cockpit. You all right? Grange asked. I'm good, Kevin said. He took a deep breath and exhaled against the cockpit fogging the glass. <sighs> Just a bit winded. Right. Range mumbled, mostly to himself. The cockpit was slightly ajar. Kevin inserted his fingers under the lid and lifted. It rose slowly with a small hiss from its hydraulic actuators. He grabbed a handhold and pulled himself up and into the command couch. It was cold, definitely not recently occupied by a warm body. His stupid overactive imagination might get him killed one day, the heart attack, if nothing else. The cockpit was spotless. Even the monitor faces, which were normally dust magnets, shone with polished finish. The smell of stale sweat and burnt electronics that usually accompanied old mechs was absent. Kevin shifted in the seat and the springs groaned a little under his weight. He found it very comfortable, unlike his battered Vindicator's brick slab. He ran his hands over the controls, mentally checking off each one as he touched it. Throttle, targeting interlocks, heat gauges, everything was present and in the right place. He wouldn't even need to adjust anything for his height. The old Neurohelmet one of the bulky kinds that completely covered the head and rested on the shoulders, sat in its cradle above and behind him, as clean as the rest of the instruments. Everything about the cockpit felt... normal. How is it? came a voice from below. Everything's fine, Kevin called back. And it was. He let out a wry snort. <laughs> there was nothing unusual about this mech save that it was basically cherry. It was only machine, a marauder, nothing more. He'd let Grange work him up all for nothing, just another one of the sergeant's sick jokes. The old man would be using him as the basis of his next barracks story, the one about how he'd terrified some greenhorn kid into believing in the boogie mech. We'll need to clear out that deadfall so you can get it out of here. Get the cold start process running. I'll go back and start setting up the explosives. Kevin leaned out, saw the wizened face gazing up to him, and gave the thumbs up. Range still looked a bit unsure, standing off to the side, well clear of the arm-mounted weapon ports. He waved and headed for the door and the freedom of sunlight. Kevin went through the preliminary startup procedures, 
Every battle mech was equipped with voice recognition software and a personalized security code unique to the mech warrior. Without the proper codes, which Grange hadn't given him, he couldn't bring the machine to full power. He'd have to go into maintenance mode, which techs used to work on mechs in the repair bay. It wouldn't give him full power, and certainly not any weapons, but it would give him enough to move around and walk the marauder out of the cave once they had cleared the entrance. He began the process to ignite the fusion core, and saw the reactor was already hot and running. All he had to do to gain control of the machine was fine-tune the neural helmet to his brainwaves. Kevin chuckled. He'd have to dig into Grange a little bit about that, subtly of course. The infallible old man had left his cursed mech running all those years ago, instead of shutting it down like an apprentice tech would know to do. A few more switches, and the cockpit came to life around him. The primary and secondary monitors flickered. The head-up display bloomed into life on the viewscreen, and dozens of tiny lights popped on. Kindred soul. He heard. Kevin smiled. Forget something? He called, but got no answer. He stood up and looked over the side. The cave was empty. Grange must have said it from the doorway then ducked out. It was a fair distance away, but the acoustics could carry a voice that far. Below him, the fusion reactor began to hum as it gained strength. Gentle vibrations wove up through the floor of the cockpit in the command couch. The engine oscillated at an unusual frequency, one that tickled the base of Kevin's skull, right where it met his neck. He leaned back and listened to it for a moment, felt the vibrations as they worked their way up his spine. It was soothing, in a way, almost like getting a massage, but from feathers instead of fingers. He closed his eyes and vibrant colors blossomed on the back of his eyelids. They were pretty and wild. Some were unidentifiable, too awesome to describe in frail human words. There were shapes moving in them. Hey! Kevin jerked up with a gasp. Grange's face peered at him from over the edge of the cockpit, a mixture of anger and relief on the worn features. Um... Okay, Kevin said automatically. He didn't feel okay. He felt drained and very thirsty. Didn't you hear me calling you? He hadn't. Sorry, Sarge, I guess I drifted off. Granger's voice began drifting from the concerned side over to the angry side. Oh, well, I'm glad you've had a nice nap, Cinderella. Me? I've been out in the hot sun for two hours planting explosives. Two hours? He couldn't have been out that long. He'd only leaned his head back for a second. Dirt and sweat streaked Grange's face more than he could have accumulated from just a walk out to the jeep. His brows were creased as he studied Kevin intently. Climb out of there, Grange said. Demolitions aren't my specialty. I want us both outside when I set it off in case I bring the place down. Not that that would necessarily be a bad thing. Kevin nodded groggily, barely listening. He took a deep breath and shook his head to clear away some of the cobwebs. He couldn't have been out for so long. It just didn't feel right. 
He climbed down the chain ladder in a daze and followed Grange back out to the jeep. The sun shone high in the sky, hammering on them with light and heat. Kevin grabbed his canteen from the jeep and took a long pull. The water was tepid, but sweet as it passed his lips. Go easy, kid, Grange said. That little can has to last you until we get back. Yes, sir, Kevin said. He knew Grange was right, but he was so thirsty. The canteen was half empty, but he took one more mouthful before screwing the lid back on. Grange drove them about half a kilometer away. He shut the jeep off and pulled a small detonator from his shirt pocket. Now or never, he said, looking over at Kevin. His thumb hesitated above the trigger. What is it? Kevin asked. Grange's brow furled. Kevin saw himself reflected in the wraparound visor, saw how his eyes and cheeks were sunken and dark, and knew what the old man was thinking. This was a bad idea. Grange flicked the detonator off and stuffed it back into his pocket. Damn me. I should have known better. We're going back. No, Sarge, Kevin said as his lethargy melted away. I'm okay, really. I just nodded off. It's the heat. It gets to me. Sucks the energy right out of me. You know. Range still looked unsure. He pulled the glasses off to stare at Kevin hard. A kind of stare he gave new recruits who thought they could test him and get away with it. Are you joshing me, son? Think real hard. Because if you are, it'll be more than your career in the can. It'll be your ass. If you're not fit to pilot that mech out of there, you better say so right now. I'm fine, Sarge, Kevin repeated. He thought he sounded it, too. Grange lowered his voice. Is it getting to you? No, Sarge, it... He thought for a moment. Was it getting to him? Of course not. No matter what the old man thought, that was just a normal mech in there. Kevin found he wanted it. He wanted it a lot. There's something off about the engine oscillation. It's... I don't know. Wonky. I've read about how certain low-frequency sound waves can mess with your brain. Screw up the Madala Oblingata or something. They can make you paranoid. Make you see things. Hear things. All the kind of stuff you told me about earlier. We should have a tech adjusted. I'm thinking that's the whole source of your problems with this mech. You just go right on thinking that, Grange muttered. More to himself than to Kevin. He leaned on the steering wheel, staring off at the hill and dilapidated building. I can handle this, Sarge. I'm up to it. He knew it. This was his chance. With that mech in there, he could stand out. He could make a difference, make his superiors take notice of him, and get transferred out of this dump unit, and into something more rewarding. Somewhere he belonged. Maybe the Crucis Lancers, or even the Sirtis Fusiliers. Maybe he could finally get an officer's commission. That would be grand. Oh, yes. I have 70 years experience making bad decisions, Grange said. I can recognize them when they come along, and I get the feeling this is going to be one of the worst. He took the detonator from his pocket, flicked it on, and after a moment's hesitation, pressed the button. Even at this distance, the sound was enormous. 
rolling across the desert and returning from nearby hills like the roar of an angry lion, one now free from its pit. A moment later, the smoke and dust cleared, and a great black hole in the rock revealed the mineshaft, allowing light to penetrate a place it had not touched for almost four decades, and perhaps to one place where it could never go. This has been an excerpt from the Marauder Anthology by Lance Skarinci, a collection of stories focused on the Black Marauder. Check it out to experience how the chaos and the madness of the Dark One evolves. Honestly, it's a refreshing change of pace in the Battletech universe, and is great if you've been craving those Eldritch vibes. And of course, of course, of course, remember to check out our Hunt of the Black Marauder game mode, inspired by Lance's stories. And that, ominously, is that. Thank you again to all those who took the time to fill out the Insert Your Name Here's Battletech Favorites survey. The responses warmed our hearts like an overcharged BBC blast, and it was truly an adventure to go through them all. As a quick reminder, remember to get in on the draw for the custom Hunt of the Black Marauder initiative deck before November 15th. Trust us, they are going to be sick. Also, and obviously, check out the game mode we designed. Give it a try and suffer along with all those foolhardy who have dared face the Black Marauder on the field of battle. As always, you can find us via Discord, email, or Twitter, all linked in the description. Thank you for the listen, Mech Warriors, and thank you for spreading the Bungle Tech word. Until next time, Mech Warriors, good fortunes on the battlefield. Selah. All podcast objectives complete. Podcast shutdown sequence initiated. <laughs>